people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Great art demands a great audience, you know what I mean? A veteran, isn't he? Something like that. I know what it does to some men. I have to give that another try. He's drunk. Makes you say that. The world lacks heroes, Rich. I don't want to be one. It's got nothing to do with you. You never wanted to be one. Is there Richard Bone here? Crushed trachea, fractured skull, 17 years old. Cheerleader. And I didn't do it. That's him. You said it's him. Now, did I get that quote right? Yeah, you got one big problem. What's that? Your imagination. I haven't even begun to let my imagination loose on this one. You're gonna blackmail J.J. Cord. Cronies in the playpen, planning a dumb crime. I do hope you weren't hurt. He knew who you were from the first. You think we haven't been watched? He may be scared, but he's smart and powerful. Mr. Cutter? Richard Bone. This young friend of yours is pursuing some fantasy of his own and, and includes me. I didn't pick him out, you did. Whatever we do falls under the heading of justice. Dishonorable and gutless. Oh, you know a lot about guts. Guts is hanging around in this pigsty month after month waiting for you to get the nerve to start living again. And what does it get me? Cutter and bone. Somewhere between heroes and villains. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Miss Maitland Madonna. It is always a pleasure to be here. Also joining us is Mr. Mike Watt. Hello. Noir November 2022 continues with a look at Ivan Passer's Cutter's Way. Originally released as Cutter and Bone, the film is an adaptation of Newton Thornburg's 1976 book and stars John Hurd as Cutter and Jeff Bridges as Bone. They're a pair of troubled souls who engage themselves in a mystery that may or may not be real. We will be spoiling that mystery and a lot more during our discussion, so if you don't want things ruined, please turn off the podcast and come back after you have seen this film. We will still be here. Maitland, when was the first time you saw Cutter's Way, and what did you think? You know, the funny thing is, I don't remember exactly when I saw Cutter's Way, except that I must have seen it in a theater, because I saw it at the time it was released, so clearly that was the only option. And I am pretty sure that I saw it under the title Cutter and Bone, because that is the way I always think of this film. I, I have it on DVD. The DVD is Cutter's Way, but it, it will always be Cutter, Cutter and Bone to me. So I saw it in some theater in New York as Cutter and Bone before it was retitled. Mike, how about yourself? I saw it cut up on commercial TV, and I had a copy of the book lying around. I immediately read it. and realized they were not the same animal. 
No, definitely not the same animal. I have to say, I remember the posters for this one, but I don't remember the movie. I never saw the film until we started talking about this, and this was a big blind spot for me. This is one of those movies where it just feels like it was kind of custom-made for me. It's a 1970s film, even though it was released in the early 80s. It has a Czech director with Ivan Passer. It's got an amazing cast to it, and it's kind of a paranoid thriller. So what's not to like? And it's Jeff Bridges, too, that falls into his period where he was doing a number of these things. Winter Kills uh, comes to mind whenever I think about this movie. This kind of reminds me of Winter Kills meets The Big Lebowski a little bit. The dude may have more ambition than Richard Bone. Richard Bone is, he's kind of a slacker uh, in a big way. And we start with Bone. We don't start with Cutter, which is kind of odd. Though we start really the opening credit sequence it's really kind of cool because it starts in black and white, and it's really going to call to the old days. We get a lot of mention of the old days. We have a lot of things that are hidden in the past. We start with this black and white footage of a parade. I guess it's the Founders Day Parade that we're going to get the parade later on in the film. And we've got a lot of women in period dress, and we have this amazing score by Jack Nietzsche. And this score by him, it really feels like it's a sequel to his score to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. We've got a lot of the same musical instruments going on. We've got a singing saw. We've got a water harp, or sorry, glass harp. He does this amazing thing where he takes mariachi music and he marries it with this more orchestral plus singing saw sound that he has going on and that comes back at the end of the movie as well and just kind of he plays with that throughout the film i think it's really clever the way that he's layering all these sounds on top of each other one of the things that i love about that black and white opening that then fades into the color is first of all it completely picks up on that extremely noir theme and this is a totally noir film of the past never being dead, it's not even gone. It's not even past. And that's the thing that this movie is so about, that none of the sins of anybody's father are ever gone, and they are all visited on the current generation, and they're going to be visited on the generation after that. It's an incredibly fatalistic movie. And one of the reasons that I find it really hard to remember that this movie was released in the 80s is that it is such a 70s movie. And of course, that also plays into something that all of us, I'm sure, have said at one time or another, which is, well, you know, decades don't change on a when you rip a page off the calendar and suddenly it's 1981 instead of 1980 or 1980 instead of 1970. That's not how those things work. You know, decades bleed into each other. And of course, again, that past, it's never dead. And it is certainly not gone in the first couple of years of any new decade. Well, this whole thing with the Founders Day Parade as well, it really reminds me of Ride the Pink Horse. And I'm surprised that this is taking place in Santa Barbara and not San Diego, and that you have things going on across the border. Because this does feel very much like not only are things hidden in the past, but things are hidden in this other culture, even though we really just play with the other culture. That whole speech that Cutter gives about Glorious past, the mission of uh, Santa Barbara. Happy Padres, happy Indians. 
The blessings of the white man. Wiped out in less than 200 years by disease, forced labor. You can still get one to clean up your kitchen there, you know, or park your car. They die with Christ's blessing. Happy courses, each and every one. It's just the most cynical speech, even though Cutter is cynical through and through. And why not? The guy's a war veteran who lost a leg, part of his arm, and an eye, all in one of the most fruitless wars, one of the worst exercises that we've ever gone through in this country's history. Does that help that this is a 1970s film that's masquerading as a 1981 film? We've already started to address Vietnam in films. We've had Coming Home by now. We've had Apocalypse Now. But we have yet to get to that part where we're really much more rah-rah about Vietnam and more like, oh, you know, there were some good things that came out of this after all. No, this is super cynical because this really looks at it point blank and says, yeah, this was really stupid. And look at how it's ruined this person's life. That's actually one of the reasons I've always loved when people talk about Night of the Living Dead as being a Vietnam movie, because it is completely a Vietnam movie. And it is all about, first of all, the utter endlessness of it. The fact that it's just dragging on and on and on in the same way, frankly, that you know, Vietnam has dragged through our culture. And it's still here. We're still, we're still all scarred by Vietnam. People who weren't alive during the Vietnam War, whether they know it or not are still living the after effects of that war on this country, that hangs over Cutter and Bones so deeply. Cutter represents the the sort of the faceless rage. We, we, we got the crazy vets with Taxi Driver and Deer Hunter. We, we got the sad vets with Cutter's the angry, the uh, working class guy, very much so. We, I, you don't know who he was before the war. He's very much defined by how he came home. He wears everything. He wears the, the entire horrors of the war. We, we see him, and, and it's, it's so easy for everyone around him to, to dismiss him. Oh, that's Cutter. But they don't listen to what he says because what he says is so horrible, clear across the board. Though he's very literate, and this film is very literate. We have Cutter as both Hamlet at one point. He's talking about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are there when he's talking about these two people that are at the bar with him. When we are first meeting he and Bone coming together, they're doing this whole routine about Moby Dick, this whole thing about how it sounds like a venereal disease. But Cutter is totally Captain Ahab, and he's just looking for a white whale. He needs that purpose, and that purpose comes to him in Cord, the villain of the piece, because Cutter really embodies Ahab. Ahab had a missing leg, you know, his arm was fucked up, this whole thing. Like, he really fits into that physical mold of Ahab, plus he fits into that more megamaniacal mold of Ahab, where he's has to have a quest, and he has to have this white whale in order to feel fulfilled he's pretty aimless at the beginning but once he latches on to this murder case that's happening he suddenly has a purpose and really becomes much more focused well he literally has something to live for because now his fury has an object it's not that inchoate cloud that hangs over everything now it's been embodied in a specific person and one of the things that i love about this movie is that for most of it you really have no idea whether Cord is that bad. 
he's a rich dick for sure, because look, he's you don't get to be that rich without being a dick. I mean, that that that's a verity. It's entirely possible. You think I think pretty much throughout this movie that this really is all about one person's rage, not just at every bad thing that's happened to him, but just a rage at the fact that the universe is unfair. And people get punished whether they deserve it or not. In fact, plenty of people who don't deserve anything wind up going under the steamroller and plenty of bad people walk away untouched. In fact, often the better for the bad things they've done. Again, this is part of what is so 70s about this movie. The 70s were just a decade of unbelievable fury and mistrust and disillusionment and unhappiness at the way things were, at the entire structure of America. And yeah, cutter and bone, absolutely. Shot, so shot through with it that there's almost not room for anything else. And, and that's his contempt for bone, too. Uh, bone didn't deserve to, to get away with not going to war. They're the same age. It's implied that he, he's an Ivy Leaguer whose inertia just kept him exactly where he is. And in the book, he's even more shiftless. He's, he's, he's a monolith in the book of, of inertia. Their friendship relies on them being that opposite because they hold each other in contempt and they are each other's dark passenger. If you want to keep it a metaphor, as far as you can cutter is everything bone can't be. And the cutter never wants to be, but, but kind of but envies just as well. If if uh, if that is if that isn't too far in the psychology one hundred one, yeah. The first time we meet Richard Bone, he has just Richard Boned Nina Van Pallant, who I think that's great casting because she was obviously one of my favorite seventies detective films, The Long Goodbye, and here she is, freshly fucked but really not very satisfied when she gives the line about you know here take some money go get some vitamin e it's just like wow just the barbs that they're throwing at each other at this is fantastic and i love when he talks about are you still interested in this yacht and she's like yeah i don't think i can talk my husband into it i'm like whoa okay all right you know that he's Basically a gigolo, and he's a gigolo with one of the worst cars ever. He's got this piece of shit vehicle that, you know, he can't tip the, uh, not that he was ever going to, but he can't tip the, uh, valet. He needs to get a new transmission or whatever. And then it's really, it's his car dying that makes him the witness to this horrific crime that has just happened. Cars run through this whole movie, too. You've got his car, you've got Cutter and his car, and when Cutter takes out the Toyota next to him, you've got the big Cadillac that's going to be showing up later on. I mean, cars and then other means of transportation, horses. I mean, when Bone is sitting there and his car won't turn over, and that woman walks across the street with – or goes across the street with the white horses – like, oh, okay. And we get that line from Maureen the first time we meet her, Lisa Eichhorn, who is Cutter's wife. And she talks about how she's uh, waiting for her hero on a white charger. And then I love how at the very end, Alex Cutter is riding the white horse, even though by that time, she's not with us any longer. I'm always leery of of that kind of symbolism, especially in American films. So it, but then I, I take into account that Ivan Passer with his, his Czech background and then uh, 
and having a lot of symbolism there, I can see that sort of layering in and the horse being a metaphor for a lot of things, for freedom, for Alex, for for what few minutes he's on on top of that thing. The idea that the rich, only the rich can have these animals that used to be plentiful. And Santa Barbara was known uh, for, for cultivating horses, if, if memory recalls. So there's a lot of that sort of layering to go about. And on top of that, it's a white horse. And of course, it's the pale rider comes in on the pale horse. Yeah, you talked about the rule of threes, and we've got the the trio of Bone, Cutter, and Moe. But then you get the other trio of Bone, Cutter, and George Swanson. And George ties Cutter and Bone together in a very interesting way that George's folks apparently passed away when he was young, and it was Alex's Alex Cutter's mom that ended up taking him in. And so he's kind of a brother to Cutter. And then he's also pretty successful businessman running this whole like yacht selling business and employs Bone as one of his employees. And Bone, again, very much a loser, basically lives on one of these boats that he's supposed to be selling. And he's doing it all with George knowing this. I don't think that he's pulling the wool over George's eyes at all. And George is just like, you need to take some responsibility with your life, even to the point where he gives him the keys to lock up. And he's just like, see, little step, you know, just do this little thing and eventually you'll be more responsible. But Bone wants nothing to do with responsibility whatsoever. He doesn't even have the house. You know, he's living on the boat. Like I said, when we see him go to his quote unquote home, eventually we realize, oh, this isn't his house. This is actually Cutter's house. And that's how we get introduced to Mo showing up and being like, basically not, what are you doing in my house? He's over there so often that he's basically a piece of furniture. Well, in fact, what she says is, you know, well, isn't it nice you have some place you can come when you don't have any place to go to? I mean, that's very sharp. And it's actually really nice because she's got a bottle of vodka in her hand and she has clearly been drinking. So obviously part of that scene is to set up the fact that she's a hard drinker, but she is not out of it in any way. And that's really important to establish early because otherwise she she's very in danger of falling into that stereotype of well, she drinks too much, and that's why she puts up with her husband, who is massively difficult. And that's why she's okay with this weird floating housemate who comes in and leaves. And, you know, she's not having an affair with him, but it sure looks like there's an affair in the offing there and gives her husband more to rage about because he's a cripple. And the whole thing is incredibly efficiently drawn for you in the earliest sequences in the movie. A really complicated relationship, and yet you see what it is. You, know, you might not yeah. see why anybody's putting up with it, because it's not a good relationship for any of them. But it's the relationship they've got, and they are in a, a place where none of them can see a way to change it or find the desire to look for a way to change it. And yet... They're not lethargic characters. They're always out doing stuff, talking about things, thinking about things, even just going to that hokey parade thing. So it's, it is really a fascinating balance of characters who, in another writer's hand and in another filmmaker's hands, could come off as people that you look at and say, why, why am I watching these people? They're self-destructive. 
they seem to be smart enough to see what they're doing wrong, and yet they keep on doing it over and over and over again. We've seen movies with characters like that where you get tired of them about halfway through, and you feel as though, okay, if I'm being paid to see this movie, obviously I got to stick it out to the end. But otherwise, I would I'd like to walk. I'd like to be one of those people who walks out of a movie. It could be interpreted as the most most depressing codependent three way ever to, <laughs> but. They're they're imprisoned by their by their own demons. Uh, you know, bones inertia, cutters, rage, and Moe's just abject sadness at a situation she maybe didn't get herself into, but can't, as, as Maitland pointed out, can't get out of. Getting out means Alex being dead, you know, one of them being dead. And their dialogue back and forth, especially, well, I think everybody's dialogue in here is really great, but especially those barbs that Mo and Bone are trading. And then eventually when Cutter comes in, like what he's adding to the conversation, because we've already seen what a raconteur he is when he's at the bar the first time. It's, I really just think this is so well written and just that you do get to know these characters. I mean, we're maybe. 20 minutes into the movie and that we have such richly drawn characters already and that you really feel that they have a history together and that they have this backstory. I mean, that's really pretty well done. Going back with George, because I figured something, George's relationship to everyone is revealed so late in the narrative. When you finally almost get to the point where you're, you're suspicious of him, he reveals the childhood thing and it, it connects the dots of of Mo and Cutter and Bone to a degree as well, where you realize George is just as important of it, and he's trapped. He's trapped in his gratitude towards towards Cutter's family. He's he's trapped towards feeling this responsibility towards all three of them in a lot of cases. So it's 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 a quartet now of of uh, unfortunate events. Well, and then he's also in that weird position where he's got. Cutter, who just really latches onto this idea that J.J. Cord has committed a murder, and then George works for Cord. So, can you maybe cool it talking about my boss, especially talking very, very loud in this very posh place right around Cord's wife? That would be really good, Cutter, if you could like knock that off because you're putting him in a very awkward position. And he's there skirting that line between the haves and the have-nots. And to your point, he's very, very nice to everybody all the time. One of the first times we see him, I think, is when he's driving Alex home and you know has him leaning on him and walking the 13 steps up to the house. It's just, yeah, he's constantly being the nicest guy in the world. You know, for a 70s movie, that is a very interesting character because 70s movies were generally not very kind to the rich, not very kind to people really with any kind of privilege. And that was a decade where the underdog really ruled in in serious films of any kind, whether they were independent films or low budget films or big budget movies. Generally speaking, unless you were looking at, you know, some murder on the Orient Express kind of movie, which was all a big fantasy with a lot of rich people on a train and didn't really have any reflection, any connection to any kind of reality. But movies that were supposed to be set in any kind of real world had this kind of disconnect and difficulty 
and this awful sense of where everybody is meeting everybody else and who's not on equal ground. It was a thing it was very hard to get away from in any serious 1970s movie, which again is really what Cutter and Bone is. And you do see that later on in the film, Bone, he's getting ready for one of the polo matches and he's even got like the funny pants on and stuff, not as funny as George's, but it's like, okay, he can, he can truck in that world. You know, he can walk in and out of the El Encanto and nobody's going to blink an eye. You know, he can live in that world of the rich. He's got the, I mean, Jeff Bridges looks fantastic in this movie. He's like, super ripped and he's got the you know the great tan and the mustache and everything he can go into that world but he can't stay there he doesn't have the gumption to stay there i think he's much more comfortable in cutter's world even though he and cutter get along like oil and water a lot of times there's no responsibility in cutter's world Odin flees he walks away any kind of responsibility social economic grammatic He's, he's walking away from it. And then when Cutter tries to put responsibility onto Bone and starts to connect these dots as far as like, oh, hey, you know, you, he eventually gets arrested or picked up and taken to the cops uh, into headquarters to talk about, you know, this body that had been found right near where his car broke down. And Cutter's just latches onto that and starts to play detective and starts to put together all of this quote unquote evidence, you know, reading things in the paper and like, well, didn't you say you were here at midnight and where was this person at midnight and going around about that. And we get to meet the sister of the dead girl, Valerie Duran, and she starts to latch onto this stuff as well. And bone wants nothing to do with this and starts to call all of this stuff crazy which the first time I watched this movie, I was right there with him. I was yelling at the TV going, what are you doing? Why, why do you think this is a conspiracy? You know, like, why do you think that it is this court character? Because Cutter thinks that he sees him at this parade. And then Alex just immediately gloms onto that. It's like, it's court. It's gotta be court. And he just immediately, like, he knows that that is the killer. And I'm like, what is going on? How do you know that this is the killer? But the whole movie has to move that way. He has to think that this is the killer and start to forge this whole case against him. It's, you know, in most paranoid thrillers, you're afraid that everybody's going to get you. But in something like this, you're paranoid and you just latch onto the one rich guy, you know, and, and, and think that he's the one that is pulling all the strings. Suddenly he becomes this mastermind, and they don't even know this guy. Cord was busy last night. Car was burned at the marina. What was he doing at the marina? Paper says he was at the oil conference at the Allen Canto. Decided to go for a drive. He says he does it all the time. That's where I saw him. What? I saw him at the Allen Canto. I was there last night. I saw him at the parade, and I made the connection. What time did you say you left the uh, El Encanto? Twelve. A little after twelve. No kidding. That's funny, because it says here in the paper this guy was driving around around midnight, went down to the yacht club or something to look at his boat, and kaplooey, somebody just happened to blow up his car. What size car did you say you saw? Wait a minute. Didn't say anything about blowing the car up. The car was burned. This is a fiesta, you know. There's bars trashed all the time. Cars are blown up all the time. Girls get killed all the time. What kind of car did you say you saw? Big car. Like a, like a Cadillac, maybe? 
I don't know. <sighs> okay, I'm sorry, man. You know, you're right as rain as usual. The odds against old J.J. Gord being a trash can killer absolutely out of the question. Except for one thing, Rich. Two things, in fact. First of all, you said it's him. Now, did I get that quote right? Not similar, sort of, kind of looks like him a little bit. You said it's him. And second, big number two, Rich. His car takes it in the shorts within 90 minutes of when the girl's body is found. And you don't find that even remotely intriguing. Hey, you got one big problem. What's that? Your imagination. This is facts, Rich. I mean, I haven't even begun to let my imagination loose on this one. This truly is the greatest Jim Thompson story that Jim Thompson never wrote because that's, that is exactly what its dynamic is. It is entirely built on something that is rooted in class and money and social status. It's poisonous at the root. So of course, everything that grows up from it is poison. The trunk is poison. The leaves are poison. The fruit is poison. The whole thing is poison because of this incredibly toxic class issue and let's face it in america class is about money this is in england where where there are more subtle nuances of how poisonous class can be but in america it truly is money the old the old aristocracy in america is what 200 some you know it's just not that old you know that it is all built on illusions Let's take the metaphor out for a second. We're going to take the whole mystery out of it for a second. And let's think it. I think everything that that eventually happens to the three characters is inevitable. It, whether this mystery had happened or not, I feel like they were all on this downward tragedy before Bone's car had broken down. And I, I think that they were just one empty bottle away from all of this tragedy happening one way or another. So the cord is just the distraction for for the death wish for this uh, this mutual death wish that the three of them seem to have. Cutter gets so distracted so quickly by the Ann Dusenberry character who shows up and suddenly is hardcore flirting with her. That whole scene in the car when they send Bone in with this note, this really bad idea of a note, and then he's out in the car pretty much starting to undress her and flirting hardcore with her. And I don't know if they ever actually hook up or not, but it sure feels like he just starts to push Mo more towards Bone to be like, here, help ease my mind by you sleeping with my wife so I can then sleep with this Valerie character, because this is what I really want. I feel like Valerie's disposable. Um, Four minutes later, she's not in the movie. We'll talk about that. Yeah. But yes, she is very disposable. I think he was driving Mo away to get her away from him so he could finally drink himself to death. If there's any kindness in him at all, whether, you know, I don't think he wanted to take her with him, but that's sure the way she wanted to go. What do you guys think of the whole scene with the Toyota? That scene takes up a lot of time in this movie, so I feel like it has to be more important than just showing Cutter destroying some guy's car. It feels like there has to be more to that. I'm not really sure what it is, because it seems like a very big scene to simply show that, oh, by the way, he can turn on the normal when he needs to. He can turn on the normal and he can play the I'm a veteran card when the cops come in. And clearly he has done what these people said he did. But 
He seems entirely reasonable. And hey, the guy's a veteran. He's a wounded veteran. Even if you don't know that he's got a fake leg, you can see that the guy is physically damaged. And yet he is thoroughly coherent, thoroughly polite. It feels as though this is a neighborly thing that has just gotten out of hand. And it's clearly that other couple who are the problem which I'm sure anybody else who lives on that block or that circle or whatever that the exact construction of that area is could tell you that, no, actually those people aren't the problem. We may not like them, but they're not the problem. The big problem is that house there, the house of Alkies that is the magnet for trouble here. And those are the difficult people. So I think that that's a, it's a big part of what that scene is for. It's to show that there is a reason that he hasn't been hauled off and put into some institution for his own good to show how much he's got. It's not the mask of sanity that he's got on, but he's got a mask of normalcy that he can put on when it's useful to him, which of course I suppose is the definition of a sociopath, isn't it? So, and yet I don't think that we're supposed to see him as a sociopath in the horror movie kind of way. He's not Michael. Well, Michael Myers is an inhuman thing, but some other super, some other super villain in a bunch of monster movies. It, it is, is the mask of sanity that we're looking at to go back to old Frederick Wortham and his largely crackpot thinking, but he did give us that term. It shows that Cutter can also harness the power of thank you for your service. Service. The cops want nothing to do with the situation. Who's who's right? Who's wrong? They do not want. They want out of the situation right now, and that's the hypocrisy surrounding him. That I think that that's if the scene has any deeper meaning, it's that I can exploit this shit too. That's and he exploits that situation constantly. That's the weak reason he gets away with shooting off guns at, at the pier and, and uh, <laughs> mouthing off in front of Cord's wife. He, he, that gets him out of trouble which Bone can't, you know, uh, but he he could fit in the Bone's skin very easily and, and pass himself off as Richard for the day. Yeah, I like how he peppers those little things in there by like, well, I know all about duty and all those the, the little things that he's talking about to the cop. And, it's, and then the neighbor starting to swear and rant and rave when the cop isn't hauling Cutter away. I, I love that because the cop then has to turn on that guy, the guy who's actually in the right, the guy who's just got his car smashed up by this drunkard, but yet he's now getting chastised by this cop. I, lo- I love the way that they turn that scene around so quickly. And you could you could probably layer meaning into that as well. Uh, the the complacency of the of the people who didn't go. You yeah, it's, if you want the deeper meaning for that scene, but I think it it really it comes down to yeah, Cutter. Cutter is in charge. I think he's he's a lunatic, so maybe that gives the mystery more credence around you. Maybe it's just service for the the audience. There are times in this movie where I get a real slobs versus snobs type of vibe to this as well, like when they're in that restaurant. I'm reminded of the Blues Brothers at Shea Paul or uh, when Axel Foley goes to encounter Victor Maitland at the very ritzy lunch that he's doing. It just this whole thing of them infiltrating this world. And there are times, like, you know, you said he can pull off the normal when he puts on the suit coat and is at the posh party later on. He kind of looks like he belongs there. You know, other than the eye patch, he looks like just another dude walking around in this party. And then when he it gets really upset and then he has to 
hop around. He has to use the leg. And my God, John Hurd's physical acting in this movie and the way that they, they cheat the leg and cheat the arm and everything. I thought they did a really good job with this. I was very surprised when he, you know, is getting his pants taken off and it's a whole prosthetic leg, or at least it looks like it. I was really impressed because this is obviously 25, 30 years before Captain Dan doesn't have one of his legs in Forrest Gump or both of his legs in Forrest Gump. This is, you know, more primitive technology and we're cheating that this guy has no arm and no leg. Eight years after we spun an eight-year-old girl's head around. So, yeah. Absolutely. But to be fair, far more effectively in this in this film. I mean, that you know, I love The Exorcist as much as anybody, but you look at it now and the effects are clearly effects of a time. But there was never a moment in this movie where I was looking at it and thinking, oh, well, you know, that's that's an effect there. No, but I, I feel like there are many times where I'm watching going, that's not John Hurd either. <laughs> For sure. When he's on that horse, it's definitely not John Hurd. Yeah. You know, you haven't gotten John Hurd, you've that John Hurd since Cutter's Way. He's, he's, you know, the closest he gets is his temper tantrum and big, I think. Otherwise, you get very get very middle of the road John Hurd since this movie got all of his Cutter out in this film and he needed to retire to softer tones, I think. Well, for a lot of years, because he is wearing the eye patch and the hat and just the way he's holding his face, I didn't know that it was John Hurd on the the box when I would pass this at Blockbuster or on the poster when I saw it at the theater. If anything, I thought he looked a little bit more like John Savage than John Hurd. And I was like, okay, sure, whatever this is. And I, I would say the same thing about Jeff Bridges. I'm not used to this type of Jeff Bridges, you know, just him looking more like he's going to look in uh, against all odds, you know, like this more uh, male model look of Jeff Bridges, because he's a handsome man, but I don't think of him as being that handsome very often, but occasionally he would do that in in his roles. And this is one of them where he looks like he belongs on the, the front cover of one of these yachting magazines that he holds up to Nina Van Pallant. And I get the feeling he was probably very careful about that throughout his career, because clearly he was somebody who wanted to be a serious actor. And he was actually lumbered with looks that I think probably made it more difficult for him than it might have been otherwise, because he was extraordinarily handsome when he was young. And he was perfect American movie handsome. He was Tab Hunter handsome. And being Tab Hunter handsome is not generally the ticket to really good roles. It's the ticket to being that really pretty lifeguard or, you know, that cute boy cruising in his, his convertible. And I think Bridges didn't want to be that guy. He, he really did want to be a serious actor and succeeded. And here's a movie where he had to embrace those looks and yet still give that character a real depth that, can easily get lo- get lost under the golden California boy exterior. Yeah, I know he had worked with his dad and that he's, you know, a legacy that, you know, the the bridges have been around, but it does feel like he's got the goods. It, like from those earliest roles, it feels like he was working at his craft. And now you look at him and you're just like, yeah, he he is now like 
up on the Mount Rushmore of actors as far as just like, oh, yeah, this guy, he knows what he's doing, everything that he's in. If the movie's not good, at least he's really good. It's tough for me to say like, oh, that was a bad Jeff Bridges performance because I don't think that he gives bad performances very often, if at all, other than maybe Tron Legacy. He's more comfortable when he's the goofy hero, like in Hearts of the, Hearts of the West or, or even in Winter Kills, where he has he's completely in over his head, even though, you know, that's the world he embodies. I, I like in over his head, Jeff Bridges. And I, I, I don't think being that handsome did him any you know, hurt him at all. I, I think it was funny that, that they they really wanted him casting this film on the strength of, of how Heaven's Gate was doing in dailies. You know, <laughs> if we if we want to look back and laugh at history there, that's that's an amusing anecdote in and of itself. Except that I'm the person who will jump up and say Heaven's Gate is a great movie. One hundred percent. But in 1981, you weren't allowed to mention it in public. It's true. It was the albatross around your neck then. But the thing is, I don't think it's ever been fully rehabilitated. I think that maybe just because too many people haven't seen it because it's, it's really long. and You know, it's tra- it's still trailing that poisonous miasma that got wrapped around it for all of those reasons that really didn't have a lot to do with what was on the screen but a lot to do with the coverage around the making of it. So we're also talking about they, they were so intent in getting him that even after uh, Jeff's Bridges dog attacked them, they, they really knew, they really knew that Richard Bone. I love that story. Yeah. Goofy Bridges is, is where I prefer him a lot of times. So like Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, Jeff Bridges or King Kong, Jeff Bridges after this, you know, even Starman, I, I would say is, pretty goofy but in a great way and that's another one where he can be really handsome and there are times where he looks really handsome and then others where i'm just like oh he's being a goofball and i and i enjoy that i enjoy when he's the the goofball in this but there's not a lot of humor in this movie i find myself laughing quite a bit but it doesn't feel like they're setting up for comedy stuff it's just more of that interaction between our main characters where you can sense, even though they are, like I said before, oil and water, there is this sense that these guys have been around each other for so long and that they can give each other shit like crazy. Like at one point when Cutter starts to complain about something and Bone's just like, oh, the leg. Tell me about the leg again. He just keeps going out, you know, just really ripping into cutter being a veteran and having this injury and and relying on that to get people to not beat him up or maybe pay for a drink or not kick him out of a bar after he destroys one of the signs you know he gets a lot of leeway because of his veteran status i I also like that uh, they've been friends for so long they that bone can undercut the moby dick like like three minutes into the film (laughs) he's an aerial disease joke and that the look on on cutter's face because it's clearly he's been in charge until Bone showed up, and then suddenly he's on uneasy footing, and he starts getting. And it's the, the their dynamic is drawn in the, the first couple of minutes. Basically, when he shows up and uh, starts to undercut Cutter's position, there, I think that's when Cutter decides, "Oh, let me throw you to these black guys who are here and start throwing out the end bomb all over the place." I'm like, "Oh man!" And luckily he manages to def- to defuse that situation because otherwise it looked like <laughs> he was just letting he was going to let bone get the shit kicked out of him from the narrative point of view you really want the audience to connect with your main character 
you really want them on board. So let's see how racist and horrible can I get the title character to, to see if you're going to be on board for the next eight and seven minutes. Well, yeah, nobody's really coming off as very good. Even uh, the the sister, even Valerie, like at one point when they're talking about doing this, and I love when Mo calls it a dumb crime. When they're getting ready to do this dumb crime, she's like, "What? Your sister's been in the ground for two days? You know, just like." maybe be more concerned about mourning than trying to get revenge or trying to make money because really at the heart of this it feels like a heist gone wrong it's a it's a blackmail plot gone wrong but this whole like oh we're gonna have him give us the money and by us getting the money we're going to be able to go to the cops then and say look he gave us this money that must mean he's guilty it's like yeah are you really going to do that or are you just going to take the money and run i mean looking at their situations i would say that they're pretty much going to take the money and run they're not doing anybody any favors with this and frankly even if they were going to take the money to the police that's not proof of anything i don't have to be a member of the police department to say that if somebody came in and said you know hi I have this money that we got out of this guy through blackmail, and that proves that he committed this crime. What, what do you say to that? You say, well, no, actually, that, that, that doesn't prove anything. Do you have a tape recording of him saying, I'm giving you this money because, God damn it, you have the evidence that I committed this crime, which I'm now going to go and burn up in my fireplace so it won't be there just in case you are that dumb. But I, it, it's just, it, it's fascinating. And in a movie that were less perfectly grounded, by the characters and by the performances that the actors playing them give them. That's the kind of thing that would stop you dead when you were watching it. It's just stupid and I'm not going with it. And yet it doesn't stop you dead. And so you see it play out and then it's fine. Just from a narrative standpoint, Valerie almost infuriates me. And it's, I always feel like, did I, I, I missed part of the movie. Like the, the two be put a commercial in and I didn't notice or something. She is so inconsequential. She's merely there to fuel Cutter's narrative throughway that it uh, because she's so she's so ineptly drawn and and it, with everything else fitting into place, not necessarily neatly, but at least in a way that you can understand that she, she just she feels like the only misstep for me. And that, like I said, she just stops being in the movie after the the plot fizzles out. It's the only misstep I really feel that the movie's in. But at the same time, it's like you say, the plot doesn't make any sense. And Cutter, whether Cutter's mind makes any sense or not, I think is beside the point. He, he, he wants his vengeance one way or another. But she feels like an instrument of that. Like he, he's, he created her somehow. <laughs> if she hadn't shown up before we met, you know, before we understood the situation with Cutter, I would feel like he hired her somewhere along the line. Talking about Cutter and Cutter's fantasy world, there are at least two times where we enter fully into his fantasy world when he's at the posh restaurant and he starts to give this whole scenario about the dead sister, about the victim and how she was being picked up by Cord, who likes to pick up hitchhikers. And then he just starts to go into like what the dialogue was like, which is really strange. And then he does that same thing again later on when he sends Bone in with that note that he's out in the car with the sister now and fantasizing about what's going on inside of the building and how Bone has to move from one person to the next as he's trying to get up the ladder to cord in order to hand him this note. And it's 
here we are in his fantasy, just him explaining everything that's going on, doing the voices, doing the dialogue, and then her now, as part of his fantasy, starts to interact with him as these characters he's making up, like Miss Iron Crotch and stuff. And it's like, okay, you know, he's he's very good at drawing people in. That's his superpower, but I just appreciate how we are with him so much. And like you said, it's he's a tough protagonist to like. We're with him so much, though, that he can just explain what had happened or what might be happening at the moment, and we're supposed to take that as pretty much gospel. Right. We're supposed to go along with his fantasy as well, because he's talking to us. He, he see girl and his fantasy audience. Quite honestly, you do continue to go with it, even as you're sitting there and thinking, this is actually ridiculous. It's incredibly convoluted. It's not truly making any sense. And, and the way in which certain scenes are shot also undermine all of that. I find the scene where he goes into that enormous building and walks right past the security guard kind of baffling. I mean, I remember in the 70s, security was not what security is now. You didn't have metal detectors in office buildings or anything like that then. But there is something not right about that sequence. And I think that it's because you really are being shown, you're being pulled into somebody else's delusion. And I like that the moment that then snaps you out of it is the shooting of that that game prize, that stuffed creature, you know, that gets thrown in the wall. <laughs> yeah, murdering whatever that toy's name would be is a real corrective to the fantasy seeming things that happen there because that just pulls you right back to that's a crazy reaction. That is a reaction of somebody who really has begun to be consumed by thoughts that are not necessarily rational. He goes out, he lies, gets Cutter so excited that he starts singing You're a Grand Old Flag, eventually says, no, I lied. This didn't actually happen. I didn't actually give him the note. I'm like, wow, I'm surprised that you didn't try to keep that going for a little while longer. And it gets Cutter you know, even more incensed that he kind of disappears for a little while from the film and is out doing his own investigation some more because he's already been doing investigations. He's even lied to people and says that he's from a magazine just to try to get more information out of people. I mean, he's really a great amateur detective. And I think, you know, Bridges kind of like uh, Jeff Lebowski, he's just along for the ride. He can't figure anything out. He's just you know, having all this stuff heaped upon him. I think he's also the guy who's had a better upbringing somehow. His upbringing was not quite as rough. And so, you know, this kind of deceit does not come naturally to him. And this kind of belief in this monumental conspiracy does not come so easily to him. He can absolutely believe that there are bad guys who do really, really bad things. But that it could be something so monumental I think is harder for him to grasp because his life has just not been that rough. He's not the guy who's a half, literally half the man he used to be. Well, maybe not quite literally, but he is literally less of a complete person than he used to be. That's something that hasn't happened to both of them. It's only happened to one of them. Bone can't even recognize his place in the world, how lucky he is. And it is, it is the luck of privilege. 
of, of being that beautiful, of being whether he's wealthy or getting into the good school or whatever kept him out of the war. He's completely indifferent to the fact that he could very, very easily have ended up like Alex, which Alex recognizes and Mo recognizes, and they resent the shit out of him for it. And it's it's just part of his inertia, his refusal to take any responsibility. In fact, lying about giving the letter is more work than just having turned the letter over in the first place. But it, it avoids his culpability. Most interesting part of this movie for me is when Bone manages to talk Mo into having sex with him. And I can't tell when they're having sex if she's laughing, crying, it kind of feels like a little bit of both put together, but I would say more on the crying side. It's just one of the saddest scenes. And then when she asks him not to leave and he promises that he'll stay. And then as soon as she closes her eyes, he's out the door. It's that line from Cutter earlier, you know, there goes Richard Bone doing what he does best, walking away and that he has to get out of there, even though he's made her all these promises, basically like, you know, you know, I won't lose a friend if we sleep together, you know, it'll only bring us uh, closer together, like doing all of the lines. And as soon as she's out, he's out the door and then her eyes are open and realizes just what a shit he is or has it confirmed again. He's her confirmation that there's no kindness left in her world. So whatever happens next, for whatever reason it happens, I feel is inevitable. Mo's out at that point. It's even sadder in the book because she and Peter have a child together. You, I, I, I think you've even said it's like Peter denying Christ. Bowen is just telling her, you know, I'm not, I am, I'm no more the man than Alex is for you. And we're both bad for you. And there's no, but those are your only choices. It's me or him. It's an immensely sad scene. I, I, I never saw her laughing. I, I really, I'm so uncomfortable with that scene every time it comes on. Uh, because I just see the despair pouring out like like, like Frank Zappa's slime from my video. You know, it's just it's just over the the screen of just sadness and utter despair. Uh, I, I can't think of a better word for it. Yeah, and then the back and forth that Cutter and Bone have over her death, and of course Cutter has to start to bring it back into the conspiracy. You know that oh. They were going after you. You're the witness. Your picture was in the paper. They wanted to kill you. And that was him sending us a message. Like you said, he was going to send us a message. And to go from that, and then when Bone is like, you know, she was really depressed the last time I saw her. And Cutter just going off about what an ego that Bone has. And, you know, how dare you even imply that by you leaving, she was sad enough to kill herself and burn the whole house down. I love all of that stuff, all of that back and forth, just these two actors going at it in these scenes, just, it's so powerful. And even at the time, Bowen is saying, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying she killed herself because of me. It wasn't my fault. She was just sad. It was nothing that I did at all. He gets angrier as he tries to, to weasel out of this conversation. But at the same time, he needs Cutter to, to believe that, that Mo killed herself, but, was, but not because of me. Can't pin anything on me, thanks. And yes, that is that golden boy privilege. I'm not sure that he ever articulates it to himself, but he does believe, I think, on some level that well, he is so good looking. And he went to an Ivy. And he is so well-spoken. 
that no matter what shitty thing he does and what shit it brings into his life, that it will all wash off him in the end and he'll still be the golden boy. And again, that's a very tough thing to pull off and not make you absolutely hate him. Because although he has done despicable things, it's tough to hate him. Which is perfect casting. I, again, you, you even said it. Can you think of a bad Jeff Bridges film? And you, you had to go all the way to Tron Legacy, which is just just booing the Special Olympics, as far as I'm concerned there, Michael. But I don't think this movie would have worked. Somebody said he, he doesn't have the... He doesn't have a, like the Pacino look. Well, you, you would have easily hated Pacino through this. At the same token, I don't think Richard Dreyfuss would have been a good Alex Cutter either, mostly because I think his voice is funny. But I think the brilliance of the of the casting, as we've been saying, is is they were perfect. Bridges was perfect for the superficiality of it, and and John Hurd was perfect for you know who knew John Hurd had that in him. In you know, this him, but it's seriously that was a once in a lifetime. He's never done that again. After Mo is gone, so his house is gone, and George comes in, steps in like a hero again, and says, you know, you can stay at my guest house and stay there. He's practically barricaded himself in my guest house. Won't come out, won't let me in, I don't know what he does for food. It's not a conspiracy wall, you know, it's not full Pepe Silvia type of thing, but it, it's getting close. He's got some stuff up on the wall in the background, but then what you really see is the pool table with all of the documents that he's collected. And that's kind of more of a conspiracy pool table. Like, I didn't see any red string, but I wouldn't put it past him to, to lay that down to connect all these dots. And that's really where he has gone full bore Mo is was definitely a victim and just starts to really tie all of these things together. I look at that in another way too. That's that's the alcoholics pool table too. In a lot of ways, is that's his grief and you know he well he takes the grief straight as he says. So he's he's sober when he's doing this, but that's another kind of addiction, I guess. He's losing himself in in all of this stuff to justify. You know, he lost his wife. Uh, it was inevitable, and he knew this was coming, but he always thought, I guess, that he would be responsible for it. I'm not sure, but the rage is, is right there, on the, and then the dog comes in and just messes everything up later. All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with a quartet of interviews. First up, you'll hear from screenwriter Jeffrey Allen Fiskin. After that, we'll hear from George Swanson himself, Arthur Rosenberg. After that, we'll hear from Ann Dusenberry. And last but certainly not least, we will hear from Lisa Eichhorn. And we'll be back with all of those right after these brief messages. Hi there, Faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Catchers, both Android and iOS. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, we're going to hear from screenwriter Jeffrey Allen Fiskin. I would love to hear more about you and your story and kind of how you got involved in screenwriting. When I was about eight, nine years old, the kid next door, his name is Jimmy Seltzer, we were playing outside and he had a new army helmet. This was about 1950, 51, 
So there was leftover stuff from World War II. Pretty common. But I didn't have one. And Jimmy was not about to share it with me. This was his new helmet. But I did know where he kept the damn thing. There was a big box of toys and costumes and stuff out by the garage. So we finished playing. Jimmy goes into the house. And I sneak into the box and grab the helmet and run for my house. And I'm marching around the house, winning wars and so forth. And my mom sees it. She doesn't say anything. She just notes it. And it's clearly, now I realize that I'm going to let his dad take care of this. And my dad came in and said, nice chapeau. And I said, but what about my helmet? And he said, yeah, I was noticing that. Uh, where did you get that? And I realized almost immediately that I was in deep trouble and didn't dare say I stole it from Jimmy Seltzer. So I made up a story. And he picked me up under his arm. I had been there before. And we headed off to the bedroom. <laughs> and he said, it's too bad that you're not a writer. I said, why is that? He said, because if you were a writer, you'd get paid for telling lies like that instead of getting a spanking. Now, my mom has assured me that I never did get a real spanking, that by the time he said the word spanking, I was howling so mildly that he never could hit me. But I said, how much? He said, oh, maybe as much as your allowance, which is probably 25 cents a week. Well, that seemed to me like a pretty good idea, and it stuck in my mind. Now, it is possible that by the time I was lying, I was already a writer, and that there was nothing further to be done with me except shove me out the front door and say, see if you can do it. That was the first thing. The second moment, and perhaps closer to what you were thinking about, I was up in Berkeley. I was getting my master's my MFA, uh, studying with Mark Rothko. And when I came down, I got married. And on my wedding night, my oldest friend, named Charlie Plotkin, staggered into the, the room. I'm pounded at the door about two in the morning. And when I opened it, he came in with a big box, put it down on the floor, and said, you remember, this is to a drunken slur, of course, you remember how every time we go to the movies, you say you could do better than that? Well, go ahead. And then he grabbed a bottle of champagne and went out. That was it. I opened the box. I had no idea what it was. And it was an old Bolex rack over model camera. When I went back up to Berkeley, I started making films which were intended for the cinema psychedelica, and they were terrible. But when I came down with my master's degree, I was supposed to start teaching drawing for classical French-style drawing at Chouinard, which became CalArts. And I thought, I don't really want to do this. I had just been to a show, Pasadena Museum, which is run by the art professor at Pomona College, a guy named Jim Demetrian. And there was a show, and I saw it. 
And it was by a friend of mine, a very good friend. And I hadn't seen his work before. And I saw the show and I looked at it and I thought, uh-oh, this is really art. I can't do this. It was Jim Terrell, James Terrell now, Jim then. And it was his first show. But it was so obvious that this was genius at work that I lost all interest. Now, I still draw. I love to draw. But I knew that I could not match that. At the same time, I came back. My cousin in the family, a guy named Richard Tufeld, who was the voice of the robot lost in space. He's the origin of danger, Will Robinson. And he was, as the hippest member of the family, find out what Cousin Jeffrey's going to do with his fancy $10,000 education. And we had lunch, and I said, well, you know, I'd like to make movies. And he says, uh, okay, we'll have a meeting with your agent next week. Keep it free. I'll let you know which day. And I went, and I met a wonderful agent named Stu Robinson, and he was, he clearly owed Richard a favor, a big one. He said, well, have you written anything? And I proudly gave him a poem cycle and a third runner-up short story in some magazine contest. And he looked him over and he just said, I don't think that David Merrick's going to be knocking down my door to get to these. Is there a show on TV you like? And I said, well, I don't watch too much, but... uh yeah, I kind of like the Bill Cosby and, and Robert Culp show, I Spy. And he said, why don't you write one? I said, what do you mean? He says, well, it's going to be about 50 pages, and uh, you know what it looks like. Just write it. So I went home, and I wrote it. And he read it, and he said, you know, this is really pretty good. But in the two months since you started this, the show has been canceled. He says, but we have a sample. So is there another show that you like? And I said, well, I kind of like Mission Impossible. And he says, how about you write an outline for Mission Impossible? You don't have to write the whole script. I can prove that you can do that. So I did, and he says, this is good. And I go to see whoever was the showrunner at the time. The story was the great Russian cellist, Mordecai Shelyovich, is defecting to the West. He gets away with this wonderful, impossible, but he realizes when he gets here, he can't go on without his cello. And so I'm in a meeting. He says, you know, this is really, it's well written. He says, but I'm not sending my crew out for a fucking cello. And I said, you know, they get out okay. No, no, you don't understand. Well, I didn't have to because I think they were canceled within not too long after that. They thought that franchise was in. And I thought, you know what? I could actually blackmail people threatening to write something for them and the show, you know, and if they don't pay me, the show will be canceled because I'll write something for free. So anyway, those are my opening salvos in the game. And then I got... uh I went to work as a reader for Sandy Howard, serious producer back in those days, but for a man called Horse with Richard Harris. 
That was his franchise. And there were some others. So I'm his, I'm a reader and he's a smart guy. And he, he puts us a test. He gives me a, a stack of scripts. He says, read these. Tell me what you think. And there's one script in there he's interested in because it's just finished shooting and no one's seen it, but he wants to see what I'll do with it. And that was a man called horse. And my response was, you know, it's good, but isn't there anything that Richard, this character, not Richard Harris, but of course, can bring to the Indians? I like that he learns everything, all of their wisdom. And now, in retrospect, it sounds like I'm saying blue lives matter, too. Um, <laughs> but that isn't what it felt like at the time. It seemed like a reasoned, slightly monarchical position. So, and... He said, well, I don't think you can be a reader, but you still can write. So what if we develop a film together? And we developed a film called Loose Change about people, soldiers coming back from Vietnam. And I wrote it. And he said, this is good, but you need to change the hero into more of not this dark, brooding guy, but Someone who lifts himself up by his own bootstraps. Well, I assured Mr. Howard that despite all of his wisdom, no, we are not making that change. In fact, we're not going to make any changes. And he said, you do realize that we're equal partners on this. You can't do anything with the script without me. And I said, well, that must mean that you can't do anything without me. And he had paid me like 1500 bucks to write the script. It's been all the money in the world. I, I finally said, I'll pay you back what you paid me. And he said, no, you've got to pay me that plus what I put in. So I managed to hustle up three grand. And for the first serious job in the movie business, I was three grand in the hole and had what may well have been an unmakeable script. but. My agent said, well, let's see. You only need one person ever to like it. And about three days later, it was optioned by Harold Hecht of Hecht Hill Lancaster. All of Burt Lancaster's films with Harold. He was a lovely old guy. And sadly, he had a heart attack or some damn thing and really never got around to that script. But I had a profit from the option and been added ever since. Did you work on a film called Angel Unchained? Oh, I did. That was my first movie. That came about my agent called Stu Robinson again and said, I set up a meeting with a guy named Sam Arkoff. He's over at American International Pictures. You should meet with him because they make low-budget, independent things with unknowns all the time. And I said, well, I don't have anything on my, you know, have any ideas. He said, you don't have to. That's not how the meetings work. The first meeting is, hello, how are you? And then you wait and let him tell you what he wants. And you say, let me work on that for a few days. You go home, you figure out exactly how to do what he wants. You go back in, you got a job. Well, I arrived. I thought, okay, I can do that. I go to the meeting. Sam is standing behind his desk. He had a stogie. And I think he lived that way, just standing up. 
He did not say, hello, how are you? Come and sit down. As I came in the door, he said, so what's your idea? And I was stymied. I think I was looking for a place, a rock to crawl under. But what my eye hit on was the overnights on the Variety second page, which was open and said, Mag 7 clicks for 7. That is, ABC showed The Magnificent Seven, and it did well. And I said, biker movie based on The Magnificent Seven. You have to have a guy who goes around and collects all these outlaws to fight something. Not sure what yet. And he looked at me, and he said, go home, write it. I'll make a deal with your agent this afternoon. (laughs) And that was it. Within a very short time, because I wasn't about to wait around any longer for things to be canceled. I had a script. They hired uh, Lee Madden, is his name, Lee Madden Sr., his dad, Lee Madden's dad. He was a commercial director in Michigan, I think, because he did, I think he did car commercials, but he certainly was an ad director for TV ads. And this was his directorial, you know, he moved up, <laughs> the Ridley Scott movie. And then they decided to pack it with, and I don't know how this came about, but Tyne Daly was in it, the daughter of John Daly, big TV star. A friend of mine from college needed some work, and he was Robert Ryan's son, Tim. Now, these days, and for most of his life, he's been Walker T. Ryan, an incredibly fine blues guitarist in the Robert Johnson mode. Luke Askew and Don Stroud, there was someone else. It was Joy Bishop's kid, Larry Bishop. So they had these sort of scions of semi-famous people. We went out, and they gave me a job on the film. Little did I know, the only reason they did was to be there to rewrite for day players' wages. So we went to Apache Junction in Arizona, and about... I think it was 23 days later, we had our movie. And that was the, that was the first time. When it opened in LA, there was no premiere or anything. It opened at the Fox Venice Theater. Jim Terrell put together, everybody got, he collected cars and stuff. So we had an old time Hollywood premiere with people driving up in these antique cars. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. I had to buy everyone tickets, of course, but the price of fame. What did that do for you? Did that help your career then? It did. I mean, it meant I got to go to more meetings. And I think I think there were about three or four legitimate uh, jobs that came out of it, of films that did not get made. So I probably wound up writing the three or four scripts that – you need to get under your belt to start being decent at the game without having anything embarrassing show up in public. When Cutter's Way came out, the same year The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper came out, which came first? Which should you write first? Oh, Cutter. Cutter was uh, long before that. That's what I thought. I heard you were so broke you had to steal the book of Cutter and Bone? I did. A friend of mine, Kobe Atlas, Jacoba Atlas, connected in Hollywood, she had a friend, and a uh, Paul Gurian, and she had, she recommended that he should, he had 
Paul would come out, no, no Hollywood experience whatsoever. Oh, excuse me, that's not entirely true. He'd made, I think, two American short story efforts. One was Bernice Bob's Your Hair. Maybe just that one. But he had somehow managed to snag a bunch of money from Bill Levitt, who was the son of the guy that invented Levittown, who invented the suburbs. And they they had a bunch of money, and he said, you know, give me this amount of money, and I'll go make some movies. And I said, okay, let's see what that looks like. He came out here. He bought the book, Cutter's Way, optioned at the very least. And then I got a call, and he said, uh, Kobe said, you're, you're good. And was well, very kind to Kobe. He said, get this book. It's called Cutter's Way. Yeah, you can walk down to Pickwick and get it. And then we'll talk. But I didn't have a dime. I could not walk to Pickwick and get it. I could walk to Pickwick and shoplift it, however. I had that exact amount of money. And I got the book. I took it home. I did return it. It was a small coffee. In somebody's copy, a copy of Cutter and Bone, there's a coffee circle on page 153. And I apologize for that, whoever paid for a slightly used book. And I read it. And then I called him. And I was very straightforward. I said, look, this is a wonderful character study. The whole last third of the book was just made in a film called Easy Rider. It's exactly the same. And we can't do that. We've got to do something else. But I'm sorry to be the one to break it to you. He said, you're my writer. And I thought for a second, I said, look, if it were any other circumstance, I would say thank you and take the money and on. But we're friends through Kobe. And I've got to be honest with you. You're new at this game. I don't bring any juice to this project. I'm not going to help you get it made. And now I heard the first of, of what Paul was going to be for the rest of his life. When he said, you're not listening. I said, you're my screenwriter. And it was very clear to me that I didn't need to argue because I wouldn't win the argument. I had told him what I needed to tell him. He had ignored it. And we went to work together. And though Paul can be less than politic, he is never less than brilliant. I think if he had been able to suffer fools a little more gladly, he would have had a much more more successful career. Brilliant, brilliant man. Wonderful guy. A lot of enemies. God knows Pastor had him kicked off the set, locked out during Cutter for a short period, but to make it clear that if you keep being an asshole, you're not going to be on the set. Life's too short. But Paul and I are still friends. I started writing. That's the only way I know how to solve problems. I occasionally, and to my pleasure, have worked with David Ward, partners on a couple of television things recently. And we differ in one really crucial aspect, which is I start writing and figure out where this is all going. And David figures out the last shot and reverse engineers the story from there. It's a very, you know, it's, uh, my, my only leads to less movies being made. <laughs> Perhaps not being half as good, 
but it's that is that's what I did. I just started working on it. I said, well, we'll figure out when we get there. You know, we would sit down and we would talk. What are we trying to do? Well, we're trying to do a, a film noir, but without any of the obvious cliches of the genre. So we'll have a body. And if we can, let's put the audience in the position of bone where they can't be sure that what they saw in that alley is what Cutter wants it to be. And we won't know at the end either. And in fact, it's never, it may be made clear in the shooting of it, but it's never said aloud. The most J.J. Cord ever says is, what if it were? Or what if I did? He worked on it for a long time. Paul has a very different memory than I do about the, the endings because I remember writing and going to David Field on one occasion and Stephen Bach on the other occasion with Passer in New York and needing on at least three different occasions a new ending. None of the endings was offering were what they wanted. Now, Paul assures me that those things never happened and that the ending that we put together was the ending we got or shot. The actual ending was, as far as I knew and still remember, was developed in the cutting room. I wasn't there, but I know what I'd seen in the dailies. I was a participant. We talked about what if we do, what if we cut to black here? If we don't have all, any of this coda stuff we've been working on. They went in the cutting room with Caroline Ferriol. The next morning, next afternoon, we saw a cut, and it ended exactly as what you've seen. And that was it from there. But it had never been written as that. There was a coda. It was somewhat the same. But there was a coda. What happens to them afterward? In some of them, Cutter survived. And some of them he didn't. And some of them, they figure out that it was so-and-so, but in others, they didn't. I think there was one, and this would have been well before trading places, or as Gurian always called it, trading races, that I think there's a shot on a yacht near a, a desert island, and clearly Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd have succeeded beyond their wildest dreams, you see this moment. And we had a, a scene very much like that. That was one of the ones that was finally, that everyone decided, no, let's not do that. <laughs> so how does Ivan Passer get attached to this? Pure Gurian. I remember him calling and saying, what do you think of Yvonne Passer? I said, I don't know Yvonne Passer. What does she do? And he said, no, no, Yvonne. Like Ivan, Ivan, he's a guy. He's a filmmaker. He's a director. He's a guy that wrote Loves of a Blonde and Fireman's Ball for Milos. He's really the brains behind Milos Foreman. Paul tends to be hyperbolic about everything. And the fact is, you can never be sure. If you say, you know, I went to Malibu for a uh, an alfresco lunch, he'll say, I ate the Sahara for lunch. And you damn well better check for grit in his teeth before you say bullshit, because it is conceivable that Paul ate the fucking Sahara for lunch. I remember one time he was talking at 
somewhere, just talking, maybe at dinner, and he started reminiscing about how he was on the the BSA motorcycle team in Europe. And I finally said, no, I'm sorry. I call bullshit. I know we've had to accept a lot of song, blah, blah, blah. And he says, no, no, it's true. I said, no, no, it's not true, Paul. Maybe you owned a BSA motorcycle in Europe. Maybe. Though, probably it was a Moto Guzzi. And he said, just a minute. <laughs> he walked away, and he came back with like half a dozen photographs of him with BSA motorcycle team. In their colors, clearly a member of the team. Ever since then, I have not challenged the I ate the Sahara for lunch because, damn, he just might have done that in the same way that he took an absolutely unknown screenwriter and convinced Universal to hire him. That's anyway, he called, he said, well, come down to such, it was some screening room in town. Uh, he wanted me to see a movie called Intimate Lighting. And I saw it about 85 minutes long, black and white film about some musicians, a classical musician of some fame, coming back through the town that he grew up in and seeing all of his friends who still play together, but none of them has reached his particular level of expertise. It's, I don't know if you've seen it or not, it's a masterpiece. As soon as the screen went black, I just said, if you can get them, you you know, I will argue for them, you know, with David. And I didn't have to. David was really smart and thought, you know what? Let's go with this guy. So that was Paul. I don't know how Paul discovered it at all. Bridges used to call him even passive. And that seems right until you push, as Paul found out. This is someone that got out of Czechoslovakia, made films there under the communist regime, and left home for good, turned his back on everything he knew. He is someone who wants everyone on the, in the crew to feel as if it's that they're participating. One of his first days, he says, those of you in craft services, if you don't do your job, if you don't have good donuts, we're going to have a shitty day. Everyone has to bring the A-game. And anybody that has an idea, and I don't care, craft services, key grip, whatever, you, if you have an idea that I should hear, come and tell me. If I don't like it, not a problem. But what if I do? That's where he begins. But he doesn't get in the way. He'll wait for Jordan to say, here's how I think we should shoot this. You know, when I made Crackers with Louis Maul, Louis takes on every film as if it's the enemy. And if it's, it's like a giant bull and it must be wrestled to the ground or it will kill you. Passer is monolithic. He swirls the cape. He lets the bull go by. And when he needs to, he steps. He was a joy. He's incredibly smart, was incredibly smart, a great chess player. So we never ran out of things to do. And unlike most American directors, he had begun as a writer and appreciated what I might be able to bring to the party if he didn't stomp on me too hard. He would have me every night. He loved actors, but he didn't trust their processes. So he had me 
rewriting pages. The first week, we would get together after dinner. He would give me some notes, and he would say, go do this. And I would go do it, and I'd give him the pages, and he would say, great, we'll have these printed up. After three or four days of this, I realized he wasn't really having them printed up. Everybody thought they were going to get new pages, so they didn't do a lot of homework. And when they got on set, they got the old pages, and they had to use their instinct, which he did trust. That's another way in which he directed. But he didn't change a word. Occasionally, if it was necessary, at a certain point, about three weeks in, Lisa Icorn came to him and wanted me to be there and said, I don't think my character would say this. And I was about to say, well, isn't that sweet? You're going to fucking say it anyway. Henny Vaughn said, why don't Lisa, why don't you go home and write what you think she would say? And she was delighted and she went off. And I said, Yvonne, I know what's going to happen. This was eight words. You are going to get a paragraph or possibly two of dialogue that she thinks needs to be said. And he said, that is correct. And what I want you to do, Jeffrey, is read those two paragraphs and find the one sentence that actually might belong there. And if you need to massage it, massage it. And if you don't, we'll go with that sentence. And that's exactly what happened. And I learned a very important lesson, which is, by the third week, it's their character, not mine anymore. Except for the difficulty that Paul had, having chosen the jockey, he still wanted to ride the horse. And that always can be difficult. Aside from that, it was almost all of it. Really a fun, easy set. I didn't know it at the time. The only difficulties that I can remember were the difficulties between Passer and, and Paul, which were pretty legion. One day, Stephen Elliott threw a tantrum in front of the crew, throwing his sides up in the air and saying he couldn't read this shit. And... I was ready to kill him and pass her. <laughs> no, you don't want to kill him. We have paid him a lot of money to be here today. You need to get him to say the lines. He said, he won't say them. He hates it. And I hate him. He says, no, you don't hate him. You have to understand him. This, he is an actor who's been doing this forever. This is a, an important role, but it's a very small role. It's one day plus one day with a second unit director outdoors. You need to talk to him, let him know what you were thinking, and he will find in whatever you say what he needs, because right now he's scared to death that his one shot is not going to happen correctly. And I went and talked to him, and that was it was over within five minutes, and we shot the scene, and he was wonderful. It was a slow shoot which we knew it would be because Jordan Cronenworth had been in a car accident. My understanding is that's what happened. And he basically had to think through every physical move he made, walking, picking up a beer, whatever, he had to consider before he could do it, which meant you were going to lose some number of setups a day. 
And that just was the fact of, of working with him. And in exchange for making that accommodation, you got a truly, truly great cinematographer, a paint with light cinematographer. And I remember like the third, fourth day of shooting, he was very within himself. He was not outgoing. He was not joking. He was there to do a job and <laughs> to keep his, his body, you know, together. He was scary in that way. But after three days of dailies, I felt I had to say something. And I went, he was sitting alone at the bar at the, the El Canto. And I came up and I said, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just want to tell you that dailies have been extraordinary. And my question is, since you have shot every single shot exactly as I imagined it to be, how do you do that? And he looked over and said, you should read the script. That was who Jordan was. He was good and warm and funny and not at all standoffish as he appeared. But he mostly was there to work and was really good at it. For the most part, except for the difficulties for Paul and Yvonne, there were a few budgetary, like, you know, you've got to get rid of this scene, you've got to cut this because we just lost light, you know, too soon tonight, and blah, blah, that kind of thing. But even under those conditions, I remember we were cutting scenes, and Yvonne wanted to cut the scene with the six white horses, or three, however many white horses we had, just cross in front of Bone's car. And I said, you can't cut that. He says, why not? It's, 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 it doesn't. I said, I know it doesn't do anything to make the film profound. And he went along with it. He stood up for the shot. We got it. And something else got cut that I didn't care about. He was a poet. And so he understood that clownish part of myself. How was the film handled upon release? It was... Kind of a disaster. They put their money on feet. It came out without much heraldry or ballyhoo on a Wednesday. That's when films you know, showed up in the theaters then. It was in five or six metropolises. New York, L.A., San Francisco, Boston, that kind of thing, Chicago. And the first reviews were terrible. Vincent Canby, I believe it was Canby, just hated it. And nobody went to see it. And by Friday, the theater said, we cannot keep this for the full week. You have to give us something else. And they scrambled and they, you know, they did whatever they had to do and they pulled it. And then the next week, the national reviews came out. And they were all pretty spectacularly good. And unfortunately, there was no place to go see this movie that had been well-reviewed. Now, not all of them were. Dear Pauline Kael, my, my adored Pauline Kael, see, I believe the line was Alex Cutter is a one-armed, one-eyed, one-legged, walking literary conceit. Now, I can't fault her on her accuracy there, but why not? What's wrong with that? Do we not need a couple of those every once in a while? 
But at least I got reviewed by her. That was that was okay. But there were some good reviews and good enough. And the word of mouth was good enough that Candy later on, I believe, my memory serves, actually wrote a second review, a reconsideration of it. He didn't like it any better particularly, but he did feel he had to make a stronger case than the dismissal one that he had. They then, they felt like they had something, but what do we do with it? And that's when Sony Classics was invented. It had not existed before Cutter. So we had Sony Classics, and it was a title change. So from Du Cote de Chez Cutter, I guess, Cutter's Way. And we sent it to festivals, Houston and Seattle, and places that would appreciate actually getting it. And we went to all those places and, you know, got whatever the award is they were, they were throwing out at the time. And it kind of took off from there. I mean, it began its underground journey, which has continued pretty much to this day. Witness me talking to you on the phone. John Hurd, he just rides that line where he could be almost a comic character because he could go over the top. Any second, but he seems to rein it in. The first day of shooting was a long shot with passers rules of how to, you know, make the first day easy, no dialogue, you know. So it was a long shot of Cutter walking down a pier toward a boat. And none of us had seen him in his get up. At least I hadn't. I'm sure Paul and Yvonne had seen him in it with the leg, you know, strapped up and the arm gone. And Patch, and I was very far away, and I saw this character begin to stump down this pier, and all of a sudden, through the headset, there was no dialogue called for. I heard, <laughs> and some gesture from Popeye the Sailor Man, and I just said, "We've got our cutter." We knew it beforehand. Uh, but we've got him. The odd one was, and this is Gurian again, United Artists, there's, you know, studios dither until you actually are shooting because they are so terrified of spending all that money and being wrong. So they did it, and they make excuses, and they say, you've got to do this, and that's why we wrote seven different endings, not because it needed seven different endings, just because they needed to have something to do so they could bail if they needed to. And one of the things that they said was they had, they had the dailies for, or maybe even the finished cut, for what they knew was going to be the biggest film ever, Heaven's Gate. And they said, you've got to get Bridges in this. The script was sent to Bridges and... He said, yeah, I'd love to play cover. And Gurian said, we've got to come out and talk about this. So Passer and Gurian go out to Jeff's ranch in Santa Barbara. And we pull into this long drive up through the gate, stop the car. You see Jeff opens the door and out runs his pet dog. The dog is running toward the car. And Passer's looking at him and says, Paul, don't get out. 
I know dogs. I know hunting dogs. Do not. He's cross-eyed. He is, by which time, Gurian, of course, had ignored Tessie. Not for the first or last time. Stepped out of the car, and the dog leaped up and bit him on the cheek, right under his eye. Blood everywhere. Bridges came out. He grabbed the dog, carried him, put him in the house, locked the door, said something on the order of a damn dog. We've got a plastic surgeon just living down the road. Let's run over there real fast. And so we go over, and finally there's, you know, the work's been done. I get to go in and see Paul. He looks up, and his face is sewn up freshly with the bandages everywhere. And he looks at me, and he says, I think we've got bridges. And he basically said to Jeff, Jeff, you can either work for me for the rest of your life for nothing, or you can work for me for six weeks and get a three quarters of a million dollars. Your call. And Jeff is on the set just a joy. He is everything you want the dude before he was even the dude to be. He is, has that, that wonderful sort of, ah, uh, there's a solidity, but a carelessness. He would come by the, the room where I was working every night and ask if I needed anything. <laughs> Jeff Bridges is my gopher? This is crazy. It was just, and, and he has been lovely ever since. We're not close. I wish we were closer. But the times that we see each other, it's as if no time has passed. I mentioned before the D.B. Cooper movie. Where does that fit into things? Boy, I remember Cutter being completely over when I started working on that. I started with it. Steve DeJarnett was going to direct it. And I think when Dustin Hoffman, who at that time had a habit, because he was so in demand and so powerful, of glomming on the scripts that he thought he might and he wanted, he, he expressed interest, and the studio was like, yes. And Dejarna, crazy, wonderful Steve Dejarna said, no. If you had, you know, if you, have to, if you insist on Hoffman, I'm going to have to walk. Walk he did. And I think next in line was Bob Petrie. I think I worked with Bob on it for a while. And then he quit, and he was replaced with Frankenheimer. And I worked with John for a while. As he himself put it, he, he made one of those 12-step calls that you call and apologize to the people you fucked over. I got one of those. As I told him, you know what? I got a chance to work with John Frankenheimer. You don't need to apologize for anything. But it was, it was problematic. His day started at 5 o'clock with... Uh, well, so did Bob Petries, now that I think of us. They both had, like, big cola glasses of scotch. I mean, I never saw any major sign of it, but evidently that was only the beginning. And then they were making the movie with with Treat and Catherine Harold and Duval and Buzz Kulik was directing. And I was not there on the set at all. I did get a call... I guess from Polygon is moved to or started with or wherever it was. It was it was a mess the whole time. It was a mess. It was with John Peters and Peter Goober. I think at Peter Goober's house, and the meeting began with 
Peter saying, I want everyone, you know, we've got to clear some air here. I want everyone to speak his mind, say whatever you honestly believe and feel. It will not leave this room. I, I think I was the only one that didn't buy that for a second. <laughs> By the next day, Kulik was out. And then they brought in Rod, you know, they had me do umpteen different rewrites on it. I was rewriting it and then fired and then called back in, I think, like three times. And then uh, Spottiswood came on. I think, you know, they wanted him to direct a whole new movie and gave him enough money to make maybe a third of a movie. And so he did the best he could. And that was as far as I, that was the end. I didn't participate. I know you worked a lot on Bosch. Is that still going on? Is that still happening? Will there be more? No, I think the third year of Bosch Legacy will probably be the end, almost for sure. They knew starting out that they were going to try to do three years of it. I don't know how it's doing. It's very hard to tell with Amazon what they want it for. Doing well or not doing well, it's hard to know. While I was there, seasons three through seven, it was uh, one of the best work environments I've ever been to. We had two different showrunners, primarily the guy who created it with Mike, who figured out how to turn interior monologue books into, into dialogue books, and that would be Eric Overmeyer. Brilliant playwright before he went into television. And then you know, once you see The Wire, you realize Sky can do anything. Wonderful, wonderful writer, great human being. And Dan Pine, who came on the same year I did, but as a sort of second-in-command. And then on season four, Eric was, Amazon asked Eric to bail them out. They were in deep trouble. Man in the High Castle. So Eric went over and took over that job, and Dan took over the Bosch season. Eric still was there. He still read everything, but he wasn't there all the time. Uh, Dan was, he was in charge. And he was, he's every bit as wonderful as Eric. It's bizarre. It was so, it was such a warm place that I didn't even feel good hating some of my co-writers. I think I kept it from most of them, but maybe not all. What are you working on these days? When I left there, this is the old, the show was canceled problem. I had been working on a feature for a long time and waiting until COVID had moved along to submit it anywhere. And that would have been sometime, uh, maybe back in April or anyway. Unfortunately, the story took place in Tsarist Russia, <laughs> and there's no way anybody's going to want us for another decade or so. Anyway, I, I developed a couple of things with David Ward, one with Tony Bill, and, and the three of us going out. I just had a meeting on an original of my own, a noirish piece uh, for a series. The world is in television, and whatever I write is not what people think they're looking for right now. I could not write with a straight face for somebody in a leotard. Just couldn't do it. And I have no problem looking at them. I just, it's like writing comedy. 
I write funny things, but if you say I'm writing a comedy, I'll turn you down cold. Ward can do both. David's a joy. He is actually, oddly enough, an underappreciated genius. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for your time. This was so great talking with you. My pleasure. I hope there's something useful here. All right, up next is actor Arthur Rosenberg. How did you decide to become an actor in the first place? When I was a kid in New York, parents used to send us all to summer camp because my mother used to say the city, the hot city has no place for a, a young man. And, you know, and this, we didn't have air conditioning. We, we didn't have, you know, we lived in Queens in an apartment. And uh, so I would go to summer camp. My brother loved it. My brother ultimately bought a horse growing up, went to dude ranches. You know, death of a salesman. He was Biff. My, our father was a traveling salesman, and I was happy. So I went to summer camp. I hated every minute of it. I, I was a fat kid, and uh, I was always the last picked on anything. Shirts and skins was a horror to me, you know, playing basketball. But the drama club gave me a chance to feel like I was an equal or something. So I did those little plays in camp, and it caught my, I don't know, it, it gave me something. And as I got older, I went to Performing Arts High School in New York, fame, where I was the disc jockey at lunchtime. And then I went to Carnegie Tech and then went on and did theater and that sort of thing. So I guess you'd have to say it was Camp Cherokee and the Pocono Mountains. So I went to Stella Adler and studied there along the way and so forth. But I think it was the little boy who couldn't fit in anywhere else. When did you make that move to Los Angeles and start working out there? 1976. I had been working in the theater, and most recently I was in St. Louis at uh, uh, the Loretto Hilton Repertory Company in St. Louis. I'd been there eight years. It was time to move on. I was 30 years old, and the producer gave me a lifetime contract. As long as you want to be here, we will hire you. And I thought, 30 years old is, is way too young to be signing your last contract of your life. So they loaded up the truck and they moved to Beverly. So I just picked Los Angeles, never been there, had no idea how it worked, nothing. Drove out to Los Angeles and started to hit the pavement, which you do in New York, but you don't do in Los Angeles. I didn't know. I, I went to the union. I said, where are the agents? What street are they on? Like New York. And they said, they're not on the street. And I said, well, can you give me a list of the agents? And they said, it's, you know, a couple inches thick. And so I got some pictures made and, and whatever. And I started going to agents' offices, you know, until I found somebody who would take me. What were your early jobs like out there? Well, I think my first job was on Beretta at, at Universal. My agent said to me, look, there's a, there's a part for a coroner. It's uh, just you and Robert Blake. You'll have two scenes. It's really okay. But let me tell you, it's your first job. And Robert Blake is is not tall. And you're tall. And you want to keep the job and you want to make a career. That's why you're there. So just behave yourself. And I said, okay. So I'd never been on a set before, ever. I'd worked in the theater all through the night. 
they keep sending me scripts with the changes in them. Orange, green, yellow, read the page. And sometimes on a page, there's just a period where there was a comma. But you have to you have to learn. So I learned, I don't know, 23 variations of the same lines. So I get in in the morning and uh, I meet Robert Blake. And he says to me, do you know your lines, partner? And I said, yes, sir, Mr. Blake. And he said, well, we do a little thing around here called improvise. Oh, why have I been up all night? Then I turn around and I look behind me. And it's like the set was real. It was like I'm used to the theater where things were two-dimensional. In Hollywood, they build everything. So I go into this real place. And if I didn't know from watching movies as a kid, I wouldn't know how to start. The director goes, and action. And I wouldn't know, cut. I mean, I saw it in movies like everybody else did. The cameraman is holding his hand and telling me what size lens they're shooting with. I don't know what any of that means. I've never been in any of this stuff before. I did Shakespeare. It was a, an incredible learning experience. Then my agent said, there's this movie, Oh God, George Burns. And he says, uh, Carl Reiner's directing. So I got you an interview. You're going to go to Carl Reiner's house. He doesn't read actors. He meets them. So my second my second job interview, I go to Carl Reiner's house. I'm sitting outside. And he, Carl looks at me. He says, you look like my son. And I said, is that good or bad? He said, it's good for you. You have a job. Okay. Thanks for coming by. And so I, I had a job. And, and, it, and things sort of just kind of happened that way. And after, after a short period of time, I would like to call my, my career was like a uh, designated hitter uh, in baseball. I would, they would give me a job. My job was to get in there do it right the first time. Don't make mistakes so that the star can make all the mistakes or do all the takes. But my job was to be rock solid. I, I did a movie one, a, a movie of the week. It was a long, I think it was four hours with Chris Christopherson in, in Honolulu called Blood and Orchids. In one scene, they had a, the camera mounted on a track to do a traveling shot. It was a hot day. <laughs> We're having a little trouble in there, I guess. And we're up to something like 12 takes. And Chris was having a little problem with one of the lines. And it happens. The 12th time when he did it right, the camera went over my foot. And I didn't say a word until somebody said, cut. And I went, <laughs> because my job was to make room for him, the time for him. You know, you, know, you don't want to be a pain in the ass. If you can come in, know your lines, do your job, which seems like the minimum daily requirement, you know, if you're a vitamin, if you just do that, then people will want to work with you. You work with some heavy hitters. I mean, you already mentioned Carl Reiner, but you're working with Milius and uh, Hal Ashby. I mean, right out of the gate. Other actors say, well, it was your talent. I don't know how much of, how much of, of this is luck having an, uh, an agent who has good relationships with other people. I don't know. I know with Hal Ashby, I did Coming Home, and then he just called and said, I'm doing another movie, and it was being there. And he said, I just want you to do this part. And I was pleased and happy to. 
Did you have that a lot in your career, just kind of working with the same folks and having that reputation? Usually I got passed around. People would pass me around, you know, or I'd work for the same person. It, you, you kind of develop a little reputation. There, there was a co- producing company called Green Epstein, and they used to do movies of the week, which were always the cause. They did Fallen Angel, which was about teenage prostitution. There are all these sort of back in the, in the 70s when, you know, it was cause of the week. And so I was in most of their cause of the week things. I was a lawyer. I was a, a, a pimp. I was a this. I was, you know, and Alan and Jim, God bless them both. Alan's no longer with us. They would just call and say, I got a part for you. Call your agent. Tell them to call me. And it was, it was lovely. Tell me about getting the role in Cutter and Bone. The story goes, and this is from Paul Gurian, who's the producer, and Jeffrey Allen Fiskin, who is the screenwriter. I wouldn't know this because I wasn't there. They were watching uh, a screening of a film, uh, I guess at the Director's Guild or something, and I came on the screen and Gurian said, him, I want him. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a bad movie. And the next thing I know, my agent, Susan Smith, says, the producer of this film just wants to offer you a part. You've never met him. You've never read the script. But I'll tell you, it's a good part. And I said, okay. <laughs> and, I said, and, she, and here's how much they're going to pay you. It was more than I was making. And, I mean, everything was done. And I walked in, and I met with uh, Paul and Jeffrey and, and some others. And the, guy, the guys just kept staring at me and smiling. And I said, what are you smiling about? And they said, we had another actor cast in the part, but you're George Swanson. You just are. When we saw you on the screen the other night, you're George Swanson. And I thought, well, somebody's obviously, I thought this was before Aston Kutcher and punked. I thought somebody was punking me. You know, I I kept saying, did somebody put you up to this? So that was that. So that's how I got the part. How do you prepare for a role like George? I, th- I think you prepare for any role the same way, which is obviously you read the script and you figure out how you are like that, per- how you are like that person. Because there's no point in going to how you're not like them because you can't not act something, right? So you find the ways in which you're like the person. And if there's some physicality to it or whatever, it depends upon what the part is, but you just have to find the truth within you. And just show up, and I don't forget who said it. it was some great person who said, "Just show up and talk and listen. Know know what the story is. Know know where you are in the story. It's very important that you know what the spine of it is. You know where the story is, where it is in development, so that the choices you make are appropriate. Actors in Hollywood tend to be rather lazy about that. Theater actors are not." about knowing the whole picture, about knowing where it's going, not just about your line. It was, from the beginning, it was kind of wonderful. We had a, a table reading at uh, Paul Gurian's house. The cast was there and, and so forth. And we just read around the table and uh, talked about the story a little bit. Then the hard part, you said, you know, how do you prepare for George? I had to play polo and tennis, neither of which are in my DNA as a Jewish boy from Forest Hills, Queens. Not, n- none of them. So they set me up with tennis lessons uh, with this pro in Encino and horseback riding in Silmar at this ranch. 
I'd never exercised a day in my life. So you can imagine after doing two hours of tennis and two hours of horseback a day, I would come home and sit in the bathtub and cry because I heard everyone. When we got to uh, film the polo scene in Santa Monica uh, in the polo ground, uh, I think it was Will Rogers, uh, polo. they had the Santa Monica Mounted Police as a polo a team, and then there was our team. And I was just putchking around on a horse in Silmar, riding in circles in a pen. Ivan Passer says, okay, we're going to do this scene now. George, you're going to go up and you're going to whack the ball, and the, everybody's going to come after you. And I said, okay. So I'd never done this before in my life. I'm sitting on this horse, and they say, and they put in the grass some uh, tape so you know where you're going. So all I got to do is make the horse go, put him in, put him in drive, and head for the ball, and then kind of lean over and take a swing at it, right? So I go, hey, Arthur, and action. So I get about three steps with the horse, and he goes, and team action. And I hear, and I hear this all around me are horses, and I froze. And I said, I can't do this. And I jumped off the horse. I said, I can't do this. Yvonne, I can't do this. I'm scared. And they found uh, one of the stunt guys who was close in my size. And so he, he, did the, he did the goal. I wore the clothes. He did the goal. What was it like working with Yvonne Pesser? He was such a smart man and a nice man. Uh, I mean, he was very kind to the actors. He knew what he wanted. He was very clear about his vision for the film, but he was not overbearing. He was um, very kind, but he could keep the whole thing in his head. And, you know, it's the director's job. But there was something special about him. He just, he was very special. He had a way of, of talking to people. But I learned the most about acting on that film from Jordan Cronenweth, who was the cinematographer, because he would light things with silks and not with lights. And I remember there's one scene that we did, Jeff Bridges and I were in Santa Barbara at the at my office, the boat on the boat dock there on the pier. And we waited there for hours and hours. And I'm thinking, we're not shooting anything. What are we waiting for? And Jordan needed the light to be just right. He wasn't using spotlights or any of that. He was using silks just silks. And he said, when the light is right, we have one shot at this. So we have to do it right. So Jeff and I went upstairs and we just kept rehearsing the lines over and over again. So neither one of us would screw up. And we, we sort of did it in, in, in one, one shot and a couple of, um, you know, camera changes, but just because of that. And, and I would go over to him and say, what, tell me why the, what you're doing is important. And he said, because there's no, there's no light, really, that can match natural light. It just has so much in it. And he said, to get a real look, cinema verite look, you have to use real light. And so that's what he did. It was an incredible group of people. I mean, it was a really, it was an art venture. I had heard stories that Paul Gurian could be a little tyrannical on set. Is that true? <laughs> Not to me. I was there every day of that movie. And I just think he was the sweetest guy in the world. 
maybe maybe when I wasn't there, he had something or other. But he's just really a good guy, and he cared so much about that film. I never saw an ounce of it. I didn't see an ounce of ego on anybody's part. Every time I saw people speaking, it was respectful. I never heard people yelling and screaming during filming. Afterwards, in their private lives, yeah. But but during the filming, no. It was really interesting. Stephen Elliott, who played Cord, the villain of the film, with the with the sunglasses with the mirrors on them. Stephen was cast because originally in the story, I was the killer. George Swanson was the killer. So that's why it was important that Stephen and I resemble each other, at least in the dark. So we, we had the same kind of hair and mustache and that sort of thing. And uh, Stephen was actually quite upset at the audition when they wanted me to read with him and wanted they wanted to look at us together. And Stephen said, what is this, a beauty pageant or something? And he, he got very offended. And I took him outside and I said, don't blow this, Steve, because I knew him. I said, Stephen, don't blow this. He had a, he had a very hot temper. And, and I said, there's a mistaken identity in this film. Well, they didn't give me the whole script. I said, well, I'm, I'm telling you, there's a there's a, a thing. And, and so we have to kind of look like each other a little bit. Oh, so, and they really wanted him and they got him. And so we, we get down toward the end of the of the film. I think it was United Artists Classics. Toward the end of it, we're, we're doing this, the, the last scene where shots are fired and that sort of thing. And the word comes down on the set that George didn't do it. Cord did it. And because Stephen Elliott had a bigger name. You know, he was a known actor and I couldn't do it. I, I They couldn't do it. So. So at the beginning of the scene, in the beginning of the film, when the body is dumped on a, on a dark, rainy night in Santa Monica and Venice, that's me. I was driving the car. I was dumping the body. That was me. It wasn't J.J. Cord. That's how I became the villain of the film and then not the villain of the film. Did they have a big reveal for you? Did you have lines around that when you were going to there, say? There were, some, there were some lines around it, which were cut on the set that day. Literally the last day around the last couple of days. Wow. That's remarkable. Yeah. I was upset, but what can you do? You know? Well, yeah, you're such a big character in that movie because you tie the two worlds together. Cause otherwise there's, there's no tie between cord and cutter. And then you're right there in the middle with bone as well. Working, you know, him working for you. I mean, you're such a central part to that entire film. And then not, <laughs> and, then, and that's Hollywood. And then, what if Frankenstein were a monster? What if you were a model? It's show business, right? So how was it working with, uh, I mean, so many great actors, but especially with Cutter and Bone and then Lisa Eichhorn as well? Everybody was, stayed in character a lot and was totally focused. There were no, there were no real shenanigans going on. Everybody, we, were in, in, we filmed it up in, uh, in Santa Barbara. And we were staying, for the most part, at the El Encanto, which is a very pretty hotel. I went there two years ago to a wedding, and it looks nothing like the El Encanto I stayed in. I think it's owned by the, was at that time, owned by the 
Orient Express people, maybe Waldorf. Owned, I don't know who owns it now. I walked in and I said, this is probably going to bore you to death, but the main desk for the hotel used to be here. And the and I was and the staff was really interesting. The old guy is telling them what the property used to look like. And there used to be cottages over here. And there was this and that. And it's, of course, completely different. So we were, we were all staying there. And everybody was really into, into doing the picture. To say that people were nice sounds kind of Pollyanna. People were who they are. But there wasn't a lot of drama. The, the crew were terrific, right down to, you know, Hudson Marquez, who was the boom guy, the lovely guy, uh, terrific guy, tell New Orleans stories and stuff. There was just something wonderful for me about that whole, the set, the production, Santa Barbara, the town wanted us there because it had old Spanish days in, in the film. And that's a big thing of pride. So the town was happy for us to be there. It was uh, it was before Hollywood's trashy image. You know, we're, we're still doing good stuff. What were some of your uh, favorite memories from making that one? There were a bunch of them. I mean, for example, there's a scene. There's a scene where the house burns down <laughs> in the movie. They actually burned a house down. I remember we were standing in the middle of the street, and Yvonne said. Okay, you know, we can't do this too many times because we're, we're burning a house down. And we were standing in the street and watching it and just feeling the heat coming off that I, I don't think I was ever that close to a fire before. That, that was remarkable. There was something very eerie and sad about uh, at the marina when I got to break the message that, that Mo was dead. Uh, there was something very eerie about that scene for me to go into the boat. And, and and tell him, and I just had one word, Mo. Of course, the parade is an undying memory for me. Again, the, the, the kid from New York sitting on a horse all day, trotting up State Street forever, all day long, back and forth. Hey, Richie, how do I look? Like a fat man on a horse, George. What? But the whole town was there. And everybody was so excited that you're making a movie about our Spanish days. And, and they were, you know, the town folk were so happy that we were there. It was truly remarkable. It, it really was. Every memory I have of that film is a good one. And Ann Dusenberry uh, was in the film. Just a lovely, lovely gal, good actress. She's had a nice long career. We didn't have personality conflicts of any kind. Which is pretty remarkable, especially when you have, you know, you said that people stayed in character. I mean, the Cutter character himself, John Hurd. Oh, he stayed in character. Yeah. That's an intense character. It's not Home Alone, John Hurd. He was very tortured. As I said, he didn't break character on that. He was hard drinking, hard, everything about him. You know, you could say, I couldn't say good morning to him without getting a smart ass. You know, he just was in. He stayed that way. One of the luncheon scenes was filmed at Jimmy's in Century City. And I think it was just open then in maybe a year when when that was there. It was a really upper class place. And, and we did the lunch scene there. And I remember the, the scene with the horse, the horse coming through the, the outdoor party and throwing John Hurd across the table. Of course, Stuntman did that. I think his name was Billy Burton. In fact, I'm sure his name was Billy Burton. Just 
did this incredible sign. He did it one time. It was just great. I mean, the stunt people on that film were terrific. The the, the horse folks who, who wrangled the horses there, it's frozen in my memory as just an, an incredible sign. And I and I was in, you know, being there and coming home and, and lots of other big big pictures, big important films. But there was something about this this little film that was very important, I thought. There was just passion coming out of everybody on that on that film. That everybody who was there was there because they wanted to do the movie, not because they wanted to make a point in their career or make some more money. I think it, I think it was all about commitment to the to the film, to the story. Well it's good since the actual you know movie company didn't have any faith in it, it sounds like, unfortunately. I, I don't get higher up to the boardroom or anything like that. So I don't know how that all sort of unfolded. But um, it was very popular in Europe, and it did okay here. It's its own thing. It's its own film. It was Cutter and Bone when we did it. Change it to Cutter's Way, which I never liked because it reminded me of that Ronnie Cox TV show, Apple's Way. Cutter's Way, brought to you by Mott's. <laughs> It, it must be a very different experience for you once you're done with a movie that the movie ends up having a life of its own and you end up going your own way and moving out to the next thing. When do you realize, oh, this movie does have a life of its own, that it is you know, now much more popular than it was when it first came out? I mean, there's a nice big Blu-ray edition that's supposed to come out, I think, any day now i mean it's it's got to be kind of an odd thing because i know you've been in a lot of movies where they just kind of have their lives of their own and come back after you you know like footloose is one of them yeah i remember there was this big party at paramount studios when they they put out their i don't know if it was blu-ray then it was just probably dvd of uh, uh footloose and uh uh greece one other they big hoopla I'm just glad I was part of it. It doesn't do anything for me now. It's something I did, and I was very sad when it was over because I really liked it, and then you move on. You worked in the industry for, what, 40 years? It was a long time. You're not doing that anymore. What happened with that? I'm in the industry in a, in a different way. I work for the Motion Picture and Television Fund, which is out in Woodland Hills. And it's where there's a residential community. And we also have health centers around. And it's a big charity, a not-for-profit charity and so forth. So in that sense, I'm still part of, of the industry. I had a spiritual awakening in 1992. You know what can happen in show business. I was very much into myself. And all I wanted to do was be rich and famous and be in movies and have people love me and that sort of thing. And I came to a 12-step meeting, and I found that there was a whole other part of life. It's called humanity and caring about other people and, and so on and being honest and, and all of that. And I slowly went through a process of, of learning how to be a person, how to be real. Uh, it kind of took over my life. And... First, I became a rabbi, then I became a chaplain, and now I'm a palliative care chaplain for the Motion Picture and Television Fund, and, and I work only with people in the industry. So when somebody says, you know, when, when somebody comes to our care and goes, 
Oh, that agent. I know what that means. <laughs> or that producer. I, I work for that producer. Oh, yeah, I, I understand. I get it. I mean, I understand the references uh, of, of the people. I understand the concerns. And I understand the personality. In a way, I'm a culture broker for the rest of the team because I understand the culture of, of show business and the insecurities and the hopes and dreams and, and all of that of, of people in the industry, no matter where, where they are, you know, whether in distribution or PR or this or that, I, I get it. I understand why people do what they do, what they're hoping to get out of it, what they feel a part of and, and all of it. So it, it really informs my work. What's remarkable that you would do that rather than go back to St. Louis and take them up on that offer from all those years ago. <laughs> well, they wouldn't want me now. Oh, man. But you had a lifetime gig. Come on. I've had a, several lifetimes of things that I've done in my life. I mean, I was a college professor for eight years. I was an actor for 40 years. I've been a chaplain now for 18, 19 years. I've, I've had several lifetimes in this lifetime. It's all good. Mr. Rosenberg, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Absolutely. My pleasure. Up next, we're going to hear from actress Anne Dusenberry. You know, I was an actor since I was a kid on stage, and it was in um, our local YWCA in Tucson that I did two shows a year on stage, so I was already there. So when I wanted to go to college, I knew I wanted to do theater, and I got into rep theater, and then I workshopped in L.A. after university, and then um, I, had, um, I auditioned. I don't know which came first. I dated a teamster. Who said who worked at Universal and he said, I have access to inter-office mail envelopes. And what we could do is slip, because I didn't have an agent, what we could do is slip your picture and resume, which didn't amount to anything, into these inter-office envelopes and address them from Tannen or you know, these heavy up up the uh, up the top, you know, president of the studio to the casting office. So I got a call from Joe Rich in casting who then became a good friend, his wife and I, and he, and he said, I don't know how I got your picture. It came in from an office envelope and I was in her office and I was like, I don't know. I just played dumb, you know, and I went in and met with him and he said, you need an agent. And I went to Dale Garrick, who was this wonderful, older, seasoned agent who had no clout. You know, he was just around a long time, but he was a good guy. He got pictures taken for me and we got started. So that was that. And I did some AFI. Oh, the Tarzana? Tarzana, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we yeah. we actually had uh, Steve on the show before. Oh, Steve DeJarnett, yeah. Which was great. You know, I have a missing digit. A did, a one of my, uh, the last digit of my little finger. Anyway, so we used that in the film. It was great. I loved it. It was just so fun. So then I, they said, you need to... No, somebody said you might want to audition for Monique James, who was head of talent or the stable of actors she oversaw at Universal. So I auditioned with a scene in her office, and then she signed me to that contract system where I was for four years before they closed it. So it was 77, I want to say, until 80, 
or 76 to 80, in which time I did Jaws 2 and they loaned me out for Cutter's Way. And I did a lot, a lot there. And, you know, some of it was just stupid, mindless, episodic stuff. But still, I made lots of connections and inter- interwove myself into different projects and got off the lot and loaned out for things like Cutter's Way and Heartbeat. And I don't remember my other loan outs, but yeah, it was a good time there. And I got four years in before the system closed out entirely. I got to be, you know, wardrobed for Little Women by Edith Head. And I mean, I got some beautiful memories from working there. So how did you get the role for Cutter's Way? Yvonne Passer wanted me. So I went in and met with him. And I think Jeff was in there. Not, not John, but Jeff. It was Jeff, I think it was Yvonne that wanted me. See, Universal wasn't pushing anything. I may have been with CAA by then, and they were pushing me there. But yeah, I don't recall exactly, but I know Yvonne was a fan. So I think it was a big push through him. And you had worked with John before on Heartbeat, correct? I had worked with John before. We had a history. We had really great, I loved those two pieces, independent as they were and edgy as they were and periods that they were. I mean, I just loved both of those for their period and their stuff. You know, it was great. Yeah. How do you find the character, especially like Valerie from Cutter's Way? Valerie was complicated because in the book, she was two people. And so there were scenes that were undefined. That's the best word I can think of on the spot here, where there wasn't an understanding of motivation. I didn't know what my motivation was often. And I actually got into a little bit of of trouble because right before we filmed a piece that never appeared in the film, we filmed in a um, hotel room with Cutter, Bone, and me talking about what they were going to do next. I know the night before I called the director, I think, and said, I don't know what I'm supposed to bring to this as far as my reason for being with these guys at this point is it just sexual attraction to jeff's character is it what is it is it one up being lisa's character i mean i don't know what i'm doing here and he was like you know we just have to trust the script is written we'll just show up and see what happens and i got in the next day and the producer pulled me aside and he said that's verboten you don't do that you don't call behind the scenes to talk to the director. You go through me. Oh, shit. I didn't understand the protocol. I was just terrified because we were going into shooting. And I had no, I was trying to learn the lines and not understanding what the hell, my, what I was going to say, why I was saying that, why I did that, why, what, what am I doing here? And again, we're going to go back to the fact that they didn't know. I really think they didn't know. Or they wouldn't have bothered filming it because it wasn't video those days. You know, we were spending good money. I was conscious of all that and thinking I wasn't coming prepared. When I do that, I go into my imagination and I just put my humanness into what it is that character is dealing with because I've never been where she is, but I can only imagine. And so I just do my work with my imagination. I'll say that and not method per se as much as just trust the writing. The writing is where everything originated from the book to the screenplay. And in the writing is all that I need to know. And again, if I have a question, I go to the people who are overseeing it all and seeing the whole picture that I might not know what that is the goal for it. 
then I can adjust. But generally, it's my imagination that I rely on and trust that the people with me will say, that's not the direction we're going, bring her back, take her here, you know, and move from organic, imaginative place is how I work. Because your character is a real wild card. You know, you come in as the sister of this slain girl. What is your motivation? Are you there for revenge? Are you there for money? Are you there to seduce Cutter or Bone? You know, just you you are this kind of unknown factor, which I appreciate. You're almost you're almost a femme fatale, but not quite. But I don't start out that way at all. Homespun, drab non-essential to anything character who gets some and has a really good time. And I think that's part of it. I think her sister was like that. And I admired her for that. And I didn't have that in my life. And all of a sudden, these attractive guys were looking at me. And I had an opportunity to be her. She was gone. And I don't know what my relationship with her is exactly. You know, I think there was a great deal of sadness and shock that she was gone, but there was something in there that was, I could be like that too. And I think that's what it was for Valerie. It was just, I could be that too. Dangerous though. You know, she got, in, she got killed. So what's that look like? These guys are really attractive and they've had good times. And I don't think Valerie had that till she met them. Got in over her head completely. I read that scene that you're talking about in the hotel room where you pretty much turn on those guys. You have been compromised, it sounds like. And I agree, it just doesn't work. But at the same time, you just kind of disappear from the movie, which is sad. And then I'm gone. I didn't make the compromise, you know? It's weird, right? I mean, it's I, people still to this day go, where'd she go? Like, I don't know how we justify that. There wasn't any instigation of it. It just was done. As a co-star, I guess that's believable enough. Third, fourth character, you know, not Lisa. Uh, resolution non-existent, didn't happen. Yeah, I don't know how to explain that any better than they made a decision in the editing that it wasn't worth the time. What other memories do you have of making the movie? Walking around Santa Barbara, it's just beautiful. I remember taking a walk from the hotel up in the hills where we were filming and editing down to the pier where we shot another scene on a boat with Jeff and I. Um, that was a great walk and a beautiful walk. This town is just gorgeous. And then um, memories of filming in the city and finding a toy store that doesn't exist anymore. And Jeff and I going into this toy store and buying these beautiful Stife. I don't know if you know Stife. They were made famous by Teddy Roosevelt because they were German and they made a teddy bear for him. So Stife is a German company that makes stuffed animals. And so there were these stuffed puppets that he got a rabbit and I got a leopard and I still have it. I just, that was a sweet day. I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm a social creature. So what did I take from the filming of it? Other than that scene in the hotel room, which was just ugh, terrible, frustrating. I felt lost. And then it wasn't even in the film because it was clearly not meant to be. Yvonne Passer was just a really, really great director as far as an actor goes, because I felt trusted and I felt... I could trust him. It was a mutual let go. We've got this. I've got this. We're good. And faith in me. So he was a really fine director to work with. And I love John. Sorry, he's gone. We had those, those two films together were really great for both of us and really good work for him. 
Yeah, our paths cross for some good reasons. And Jeff, Jeff's still a friend. He still lives here part of the time. Though the mud flows hit him hard and he had to relocate. We were neighbors. He was right up the street from where we are. The mud came through his house. So it was not good. He was evacuated by a helicopter, he and Susan. So it wasn't a good scene that day. We made out okay where our home is. But so as far as Cutter and Bone or Cutter's Way, it wasn't on the set in some of the more dramatic moments, but we did go on location. Well, I was living in LA then. <laughs> it wasn't location. It was all LA. It was all LA. Yeah. So we were there. We were downtown and all around. It was a great film to play on. I have to tell you a story, and I feel really badly about this because the characters in it. This was real life. I bumped into John Byron on the pier in Santa Monica while we were filming. And John and I had done a film together. I loved him. I mean, he's a really great director. And we talked about, I don't know, when we talked, the earlier last year, 2021, 2022. And he was telling me about that night and how he was walking the pier and bumped into us on the set. And he was walking with some huge character from the 60s who was arrested and put in jail for smoking pot and we all know his name and i can't think of it now i'm gonna have to email it to you because this guy was looking to john to write a biopic film for him he was being looked for by the cia and fbi because he was under suspicion for being radical and they were going to pin marijuana on it. So there was that, I don't know if you know about that whole syndrome, but wherever there was anybody under in the Black Panther or the SDS or anything like that, the pinning would be ostensibly not about dissent, but about use of drugs. The Beatles had it. I mean, all these people were being pinned for, or the Stones, I should say, really. Just because they shook up the world, they had to pin them down on something. But it was a fascinating, whoa, really, John? I didn't remember meeting him because I was completely absorbed in the role and learning the blocking, the lines, the timing, the whatever that we were doing with the gun and the I wasn't remembering that night except that I met John and he told me who was with him. Abby Hoffman. Sorry, that's totally fits. I just got Abby. So there we are. You have been in so many things over the years. What have been some of your other favorite roles to do? Oh, Heartbeat. Heartbeat was it was my first favorite. I always just really loved that film and um, the characters in it. Working with Lucille Ball was outrageously beautiful. And Gail Gordon, I mean, those two people, just being there with them, the cast all around. We got to work with some of the greatest stars there were at the time, who were all aging, like Lucy. And, I mean, Audrey Meadows and... Oh, my God. We, we really had a really good time. And it was a poignant time for her. So I was happy to be a part of the love of that. And the missing the mark, totally missed the mark. And I know that. And we all knew it as we kept doing it, saying it's not making the ratings because it's really one-dimensional. And it's, it's past. Those stories don't play anymore with the Golden Girls and Cosby. It's not fit. It doesn't fit for publication anymore. <laughs> So it was time to stop. What else did I love? I love some of my episodic stuff to work with. I mean, working on Remington Steel with Stephanie Zimbalist and Ms. Brosnan. I mean, that was great. I would have loved to have kept, I would have loved to have had a series like that on the air. 
What was Lucy like in real life? Very strong and and uh, private, but big-hearted, and I think lonely. I think it was hard getting old. It wasn't the golden or the baby boomers there are today, where everything is sort of fashioned for us now. In that era, ageism was huge, and they were, the press was cruel. It was un yieldingly cruel and um that's one of the reasons i think i stepped away from the industry when i did in 86 i saw how poorly this icon could be treated in her years how would i fare you know she was one of the most accomplished women in the industry and yet in the end they just took her down they just felt it was their privilege to say how horrible she was which was beyond beyond the pale, you know, she didn't deserve that. Fine and dandy, you know, just diss the, diss the series and the writing or producing or whatever, but she showed up full tilt boogie. I mean, she was in her 70s and she was right on the mark. She was so present. She didn't miss a beat. She knew exactly what she needed to do and she showed up like a champ. That's what an actor does. So to take her down and say she should stay home and play backgammon, that's just wrong. That's just wrong. So that hurt her. In in reflection, we all felt hurt for her. And I, I blame the press. I think they really didn't need to do that. The crit- critics didn't need to do that. She is royalty. And if you talk to any comedian today, she was centric to their understanding of comedy and their way of working. I mean, from Carol Burnett all the way. So, no, that was wrong. And I lost my taste for working in the industry a bit from that. Did I read right now that you're teaching? I have gone. I haven't in a while gone to the schools locally here and worked with the kids in theater. So, I mean, it's been a while and I'm not doing it now. I taught voice, a particular vocal awareness technique called vocal awareness um, for one-on-one work. And I, I, t- I directed West Side Story for the local junior high here with other actors who were musically inclined and dance inclined. I did the directing. So it was it was really, really great. I mean, I love working with kids. I'm good with that. Yeah. What have you been up to lately? Theater. Just theater. I gave it a shot for a year. I went back and thought I'd roll with whatever came. Got an agent, but only in commercials. I figured I'd see what was there um, just for fun to be back in it. And nothing came. Absolutely nothing. I don't think I'm made out for it. It's just not my style. But I just did a piece last October. Beautiful play about older people. That was not at all about disease and dementia and it was about two women. It was woman-centered, emotional-based, relationship-based, not old-based. So it wasn't about age. It was about people. And the fact that they were two older women, it was a phenomenal play. Oh, Lindsay Bears is the last name of the author. I can't think of the first name. Called Ripcord. It's an amazing play. And if any older people hearing this want to do a play, it's tremendous. And it's, I'd do it again in a second. And you get to parachute in it, get to jump out of a plane. Ms. Dusenberry, thank you so much for your time. This has been terrific. Oh, Mike, thank you.
And last but not least, we're going to hear from Lisa Eichhorn. If you want to hear more of my discussion with Ms. Eichhorn, please check out the bonus interview that will be coming out at the same time as this episode. We spoke for, gosh, probably another hour talking about her roles on British television, talking about working with John Schlesinger, a whole lot of good stuff. Be sure to check that out, and I hope you enjoy this interview. How did you get the role for Cutter's Way? I had done Yanks, and I had finished the Europeans, and I had gone back to England and then back to New York. I decided I, I'd been to a screening in, in Bournemouth of World War II veterans. That was the first time the film was shown, and it was in June, early June of 1979. I realized I wanted to be in America. I had done what I wanted to do. I had trained myself. I was starting in the movie business. I was doing plays. I was had done television and play with Elaine Stritch in between two movies. I, I wanted to be in America. So I was in New York. Paul Gurian and Yvonne Pastor asked to meet me, and I, I met them at the Carlisle. And I can remember what I was wearing. I wouldn't have given me the part. Looks like an English rose, you know. I like straight off the boat. I had white sandals on, and a I can remember I had a pink linen skirt and a pink and white voil blouse. It was all French, and walked into the room, and they just they just looked at me and said, "We want you to do this movie." I think subsequent to that, when I was in L.A. for the opening of Yanks, when we were filming Cutter's Way before we started filming. I mean, I still couldn't comprehend how they saw that I could be that character. It's like they had some kind of x-ray vision or something into me that they saw something. So they asked me and I said yes, because I had read the script and I wanted to do it. You spend most of the movie inebriated. How do you act drunk but not too drunk you just seem to hit that right level as far as just being a little bit out of it but you still have your wits all about you practice no i don't know i i think it partly comes from understanding where your body is in that experience i mean i was in my 27 or something like that so I'd had alcohol before in my life. It's not like I had never been tipsy or had too much to drink at any time. And I think it's using that memory. And and when I was at drama school, I went to a lot of theater, obviously. You want to see everything you can. You want to learn as much as you can. You watch movies. You go to plays. You learn from how your center of gravity changes when you have a certain amount of alcohol, I guess. And one, I will tell you, one day, Yvonne decided that he said, what would it be like if you really had vodka? That was not a good idea. I'd never drank vodka. We tried that for a take or two. I said, you know, I would just like the water in the bottle, please, because this isn't working for me. I have great admiration for directors. Some of them ask. Some of them are tyrants. Some of them know what they want. Some of them, you show them what they want, and then they go, oh, that's what I want. He trusted me. There was a great trust between all of us, I felt. So I don't know how. It just was in me. What is your method of going about finding a character, especially a character as complicated as Mo? 
part of how I found Mo was by being around John and Jeff. And we were three young actors. Jeff, of course, had the most experience of the three of us because you've been acting so much longer than either John or myself. And John, indeed, had been acting probably longer than I. But we knew that being friends was paramount to the story, I think, that this idea that this was a threesome. I think I understood from the beginning her delusion, her disappointment in waiting and wanting so much for her husband to come back to be the person that he was, you know, that sort of holding out against all the evidence, you know. Loyalty is a very important characteristic to me, and I think she had that. I read recently that someone decided that Mo and Bone were always having an affair, and that was never our intention. My belief about her was that she was faithful to Cutter. She loved Cutter, and she just, her spirit broke when he decided to go after court. She couldn't bear it. I don't know, it's funny. I, I remember reading something between Maggie Smith and Judy Dench, and I'm a, I am a member, a proud member of the Actors Studio, and it's fine traditions. And But I also have a great respect for the British tradition because obviously I was trained over there, but I remember them reading in some interview or other, someone, they were talking about the method. What's the method? You just get up and you say your lines or something. So I think probably just like my voice in those early days was caught between two places. Maybe sometimes my sensibility about acting was or is like that too. I believed in her. And so I put me in her. I think that the real answer is that she was inside of me. I didn't prepare. I mean, I knew my lines when I went to work. There was a chemistry between Jeff and John and me, I didn't have to do the kind of preparation, for instance, that I'd done for Marilyn Monroe when I was doing her on stage. I had to listen to her voice and her walk, watch her walk. And I interviewed six or seven people who had known her or worked with her. It was different. Mo, for good or ill, was already in there. I didn't seek out Vietnam vets to date or go on benders. I just let her come out. And I think that probably, you know, as young as I was in the business, even at that time, in, in terms of filmmaking, I'd already experienced certain things. So it wasn't that it was, it was extraordinarily quick to get to where I got. But it wasn't a completely smooth ride once I was in it. So I think that I just used whatever experience I had up to the age of 27 or whatever I was, 28, to find her. You're right. You're right there in the middle between Cutter and Bone and kind of being tossed about between these two men, but you were such a strong character. 
I think she is a strong character. I think it would be easy to think that she was weak and that she stayed because she didn't have anywhere else to go. But I think she's very strong. It's painful waiting for Alex to wake up, but she's willing to wait because she loves him. And I don't think she's waiting because she's fatalistic or a depressive. I think she's strong. I think she tries to tell him that what he's doing is wrong. I think she sees the relationship of Bone with Cutter as something that they need but may not be great. She understands that Bone does come to their house because he has nowhere else to go. I think of her as strong. What do you feel about that last scene of the film that you're in? I mean, that amazing moment when you wake up as Bones leaving. I mean, you have to have some idea of what she ends up doing next. I believe that she has hoped and hoped. Once again, she's hoped that he will stay. And he can't stay. It's not in his nature to stay. And I think when she opens her eyes, she knows that. I personally don't think that she commits suicide. I think she's stronger than that. It is not my feeling that that bone walking out on her, like Cutter says when he's mad at bone after she's died, and he that one night with him would send her for the matches. I don't think so. I don't think so. And actually, I think that the film, oddly, is stands the test of time because of the levers of power and corporate power and what happens to people, even journalists who disappear in countries where heads of state don't want journalists to be telling stories or so don't not a conspiracy theorist myself. I'm not, but I think that people who are immensely influential and wealthy often can do and get away with things that mere mortals cannot. You talked a little bit about the way that you and Yvonne Passer worked. How was your actual experience on the film itself? What was that experience like for you? Oh, I loved it. We had a wonderful working relationship. And he, although he had lived in America for a long time, he was European. You know, he, and I understood that. You know, I think one of my favorite early films when I was just beginning my career was The Lace Maker. I, I love the perspective of European films. I love the storytelling. So we got along very well. Yeah, he did play a trick on me though. He did, he did, he did play a trick on me. We had to shoot the love scene, the scene where Mo's in the backyard and then she comes in and realizes that Bone has been watching her and then they end up in bed together and then the end, the scene when he leaves, right? And it was very long. It was twice too long. So Yvonne wanted to have a meeting, a script meeting, and get together over dinner and talk about the script. That's what he said. So I worked very hard. I love collaborating. I've done lots of new plays in my career. I've done lots, several low-budget movies. I, I enjoy the challenge. It's raining and it was supposed to be sunny or whatever, right? So 
I said to this child with great zeal and cut about, you know, 50%. We needed it to be, I don't know, seven pages or something. I don't And he said we would meet at, Jeff would pick the kind of food, I would pick the restaurant. Well, I was living at the Chateau Marmont and Jeff picked Japanese. And so I said, okay, the Imperial Gardens is just below the Chateau Marmont on sunset. So the evening we were to meet, I arrived at the Imperial Gardens for dinner and they didn't show up. <laughs> they weren't there. And I waited for half an hour and nobody came. And then somebody um, took pity on me and said, are you waiting for someone? I said, yes, two gentlemen. They said, oh, they've been here. They're sitting down already. So they had already been imbibing quite a bit of sake and they were talking about the script and we talked and we had dinner and then Yvonne said, well, let's go back to yours to work on the script. It's very late by then. It's like 11 o'clock and they've both had a lot of sake and we have like a 5.30, 6 o'clock call. I don't know, 6.30 call. I very conscious of wanting to do well and um so anyway so we go back up to my uh, apartment and suddenly I think I have to go to the loo I go to the loo I come back and Yvonne is gone and I said to Jeff where's Yvonne he said oh he left I said what do you mean he left I thought you we were going to work on the script anyway it seems that Yvonne really wanted us to get to know each other better <laughs> But Jeff was really in his cups and spent some time in my bathroom and then finally was able to gather himself at about, I don't know, something like 3.30 or something in the morning. I said, I'm calling a cab. You are leaving. You are not staying here. We have to go to work tomorrow. So a cab picked him up and he was, I don't know how the kerfuffle happened, but anyway, the taxi cab drove Jeff to Santa Barbara where he lives or was living. And by the time the taxi cab got to Santa Barbara, his ride to go to work was there to pick him up to bring him back to the set. And I was so agitated. I did not sleep a wink. And um, we got to the set the next, that next morning and I said, I'm like, well, I, where did you go? I thought we were going to work on the script. I worked on the script. And he said, calm down, calm down. It's okay. Well, Jeff and I were both a bit of a mess. And so we didn't do any shooting that morning. They did something else and we worked in the afternoon. But okay, he was a rogue. He was a bit of a rogue. How was John Hurd to work with in that one? We were never lovers. We were never intimate partners in life but we loved each other it's like we recognized something about each other i don't know whether it was some childhood thing or you know that that feeling when you meet somebody and you look at them and you feel like you've known them or you've always known them or i don't know jung talks about it that thing where you can be in a room full of people and you look across the room and you'll see that one person that you can talk to or who is like you or and we were like that we just got on I saw him after Cutter's Way years later when he was doing beaches and I was living in New York I babysat his son for him 
we just got on and he was, I'm not saying he was always in character and he always had the prosthesis on or anything. No, that's not the case. But he often would, because he thought it was humorous, he would take to beating me with a cane. He's like, hit me with that cane. <laughs> I just loved him. I just thought he was wonderful. It was an experience that was different from Yanks and the Europeans and Why Would I Lie, which were the three movies I did before Cutter's Way. They were my training ground for Cutter's Way. I understood I was, you know, the cliche. I was like a sponge on those early sets trying to learn and understand everything I could. And I think that by the because of my experiences on those sets, and obviously John Sledger is quintessentially different from James Ivory as a director, and James Ivory is absolutely antithetical to Larry Pierce. So then I got to work with Yvonne. So I loved it. I, I felt I was coming to a moment, my a moment for me, and that I was on my way. You know, I felt that about the three of us, that we were we were in this sort of moment. I worked subsequently, even in smaller parts on films. And and sometimes you hear actors because they, they get away from themselves and they say, this movie is so great. It's going to get nominated. And you think, oh, please, please be serious. Stop talking. Just, just act. And we had no idea that Cutter's Way would be that kind of movie in a way that it would have such a life that it would be so so well respected so dear so excellent in every way you know we just were in it truly in it oh i can tell you another funny story about cutter's way we were up in santa barbara and we were staying at the el encanto hotel and we had bungalows and we would meet in the main hotel part and look at dailies. And I had never done that. Schlesinger and I, nobody had done that. I mean, John Schlesinger showed me one daily, one time. And it was very, very early on. I think it was like my first day of filming. It was a Christmas party. And every time the camera panned to me, I ducked my head and looked away. Every time. Every time. I just... And he showed me all these takes, and I just ducked my head and looked away. He showed it to me, and he said, can you fix that? And I looked at him because I understood the gravity of the moment, and I said, I guess I better. Because if I didn't look at the camera, then forget it, Lisa, go home. So we're at Dailies. It's a couple years later. We're having a drink. It's... So wonderful. Everybody's happy. It looks great. We're looking at the opening. And then there's a scene between, maybe I think it's the scene that between the three of us in the luncheonette or the cafe where we're, Cutter is interrogating Bone about what it was like. And before we go out to the parade, right? And we see that. And, I, you know, it's nice. And I don't know. And I we go... We go off. It's nighttime. We have to call the next morning. And I understand that the next night they're busy in, um, I, I don't know, remember whose bungalow. I think it was Jeffrey's bungalow, the writers. And they're rewriting the ending because John says, if she dies, 
I have to die. Because look at her on that screen. I can't live if she dies. That was not the original ending. Anyway, so I've loved theater work I've done. I played Marilyn Monroe in Manchester, one of my favorite theaters in the world, the Royal Exchange Theater, in a play called Misfits. Yeah, I I think I love the thing it is that I'm doing at the moment the best because what's the point if you don't, you know? And what have you been up to lately? I did a panel at the Reading Film Festival in Pennsylvania about how do you make a career? How do you keep a career? How do you withstand the ups and downs? That was a very interesting panel. As with everyone, I think that the pandemic, I, I moved back from England because I'd gone back over there in 2003. And because I wanted to, I had written some television and I had wanted to see if I could get it produced by the BBC because I was told by Paramount TV that they didn't do anthology television. There was a series of short stories by the same author. Um, So I sensibly went over back over to England for that. And then I stayed. And the last filming I did was in 2018. And then I came back to the United States and sort of took care of business with my family. My father and sister passed away and and then the pandemic. I may be one of the slower people coming out of the pandemic, but I'm just beginning to decide what I want to do. I don't know what I want to do. You know, I, I'd love to act. I've been thinking about writing a book because I've been helping a friend edit a book. My first job at university was as a pro- professional proofreader. So I, I've been helping edit a book and I thought, well, maybe I could write a book. I don't know. I don't know. I don't have an agent in the United States at the moment. So I'm sort of an open book waiting for her pages to be turned. You seem like the kind of person that could do whatever you want to put your mind to, though, which is fantastic. Thank you, by the way. Thank you for that. I have felt that I had more gifts than I knew I had when I started. I think the business in 40 years is very different from now, from what it was. I mean, the idea of having a publicist and a manager and an agent and people to take care of me when I had the sudden success that I had, I it never would have crossed my mind. I was just a working actor. I was going to act. I was going to go from one part to the next, to the next. And that's what I was doing. Um, getting the opportunity to do some screenwriting on Defenders of Briga and doing some producing and directing some theater. I taught for a long time, too. I taught at the School of Visual Arts in New York for a long time. And I taught at the Royal Academy. I taught filmmakers up at National Film Intelligence School in Beaconsfield. I taught animators at DreamWorks. I love teaching. I just love it. You know, I just love all of it. Miss Eichhorn, thank you so much for your time. This has been so nice talking with you. You are so very welcome. Thank you. Thank you.
right, we are back and we are talking about Cutter's Way. And we were just talking about that conspiracy pool table slash wall that we had. The Yeah, the alcoholics pool table where you just maybe like throw the ball around and it lands on the latest theory. And then you get focused on that and you have the big epiphany. And that's when you go, ah, it's I've got cord nailed. Oh, I've got everything down. And this is where the movie either falls apart or really comes together or does whatever it does, because the end of this movie is so strange. I know, uh, Mike, that you read the book. Do you want to talk a little bit about the book ending of this? Because I think we get kind of to a similar place and then we change paths. After Mo dies, it becomes this sort of this easy rider, Hope Crosby road movie to Missouri, uh, to confront Cord's people. And not a lot comes out of it. Uh, it by the end of it, JJ, or I'm sorry, uh, Alex is, uh, is locked up in an immense institution. Uh, Bone gets uh, confronted and beaten up by some of Wolf's guys who, who, who make the same sort of confession that George does in the film. Yeah. Uh, you know, Wolf is responsible for every, Thing that I am, even if he was guilty, why would I help you? They beat the crap out of him in a stable, so we get the horse imagery there again. Bone is—he's—he's uh, he's heading back to us. Uh, well, it's not Santa Barbara; I forget where it is in the book. He's heading back home, and he's sitting at a red light. And the guys who beat him up pull up, pull up a shotgun, and that's the end of the book. Last line of the book is he—he he sees the sh- they show him the shotgun, and that's too neat. And and they're absolutely they have like what five or six in, uh, endings that that they they kicked around one, one where everyone gets away and is happy would have loved this end of uh, the live and die in L A. But uh, yeah, it's it's very unsatisfying. And the whole last hundred and fifty pages of the book is a slog, and it's it's not just internal; it's repetitive, and it's it feels like it was it's on the road for depressed veterans, and it just doesn't it doesn't hold. It doesn't hold to the first half, so they were right to get rid of it. But then, you, as you pointed out, then we get into some weird crap in the film. That just now we're in Cutter's reality. Cutter has manifested his own reality. It's the only way to explain where we are. We talked about how Valerie disappears, and she doesn't really disappear in the screenplay. So, looking at the screenplay that says "final screenplay" on it, and it's got Cutter and Bone across the front. I, I can't remember. I think it was like. Early August 79 was the date on it, and it had some pages. You could see where some revisions were made. But in that, Cutter and Bone take George's invite to this party that Cord's throwing, which is the same as in the movie. We don't really see George coming in and looking around and seeing that one of his guns is missing and like putting two and two together and seeing all this stuff. We also don't get Cutter telling Bone that Cord murdered George's father. And that's why he was an orphan was because of his father being murdered by Cord. And I can't remember what happened to the mother. And it's just like, whoa. This is a bombshell. Like all you talked about how we don't really get to know a lot of the George stuff until later on in the movie. And this is a major bombshell about George. We get Valerie returning and her 
basically trying to throw the two guys off of the case and like, oh, yeah, no, I went back to the beginning and I talked to the guy who sold the killer the gas and he drew what the guy's hat looked like and it looks like Smokey the Bear's hat. And so she just like makes up all of these excuses and excuses why it can't be cord until they really confront her and say, you know, why are you staying? I think it's Cutter is like, why are you staying at this really fancy hotel? And you've got all these drinks over here. Who paid you off? And eventually she ends up confessing that, yes, she was paid off. They think that it's Cord, but then eventually it turns out to be George. Because as we heard Arthur Rosenberg say, George was supposed to be the big villain and like all the way up until the end. And it's all in that script. It, there is the whole thing of George being the one holding the gun and him being the one who had accidentally killed the sister. I couldn't believe it. And I, and I don't know how it would play out if George suddenly became that. But as we're talking about this movie and this conversation, we're just like, Oh yeah, George is right there and he's doing all these great things. In any other movie, I would probably have suspected George, but there's no way that I suspect him in this film. That's a late 80s movie. That's the th- uh, third or fourth build is the killer, guys. And that's, I guess it would it would have worked to that degree, but yeah, what we have now is so much better. You know, I, I'm glad that that's where they landed. But it would have worked. Yes, it would have worked, but it would have pulled the focus away from more interesting characters. So that's why Valerie disappears, because they have to cut that scene. Otherwise, it just wouldn't make sense. So they chop that thing out. So, yeah, she disappears a few scenes before that. I think in when he shoots the stuffed animal, that might be the last time we see her. So we have to build on all this stuff of George and him having this gun. And they eventually, eventually it turns out this becomes a real soap opera real quick. It turns out very quickly uh, no, George, I didn't kill your father. I am your father, says Cord in a movie that comes out right around the time of Empire Strikes Back. I'm like, what? <laughs> Where does this come from? And then they just kind of resolve it. Uh, Cutter and Bone go off and do their own thing. And one of the last lines of the screenplay is, oh, yeah, they uh, picked up George this morning. Oh yeah, I, I figured they would pick him up soon or something like that. And then, and then Bone starts to go away. He's taking one of the yachts and he's just going to go out on the open sea. Cutter eventually jumps onto the boat. It disturbs what Bone is doing with the, the, I don't want to say steering wheel because I don't think that's what you call them in a, in a boat, the tiller sure. And they crash into another boat. But apparently not so bad that they can't move on because the last line of the screenplay is Cutter yelling at the bigger boat, like, you crazy motherfucker, or something like that. And that's how the movie ends. I'm like, oh my god, this movie, the ending now, so much more bleak. And I love the way that it plays out. And I love when we finally get to hear Cord's voice, because Cord is played by Stephen Elliott, who really I only remember as being the chief in Beverly Hills Cop, and when Axel Foley makes fun of his voice and all that, because he's got this great Stenorian voice. And so when he starts to talk to Cutter and Bone at the end of this film, wow, I love it. I love hearing him do this. And then, of course, I love the question 
What if it were? What if he was the guy that killed this girl? He just doesn't give a shit. He's finally forced to act. He's finally free of his inertia, and he does the one thing he shouldn't do. <laughs> as, as Maitland points out, there's no evidence. There's no <laughs> assumption of guilt, and you guys broke in. So the only way he can get over, get away with it, is it's the gun is still in Alex's hand. So he still weaseling out of it in that regard. This crazy person just got this delusion about you and had to come and murder him. And, you know, I think he really wanted Jodie Foster to pay attention to him or something, but I don't know what this cutter guy's story is. I just, I just happen to wander in here, folks. Yeah. I can see bone just at the police station the next day, just walking out. Yep. No big deal. In there because they ran out of those, those little corn cob thingies. I like so much. It's the whole reason I was in there in the first place. Bar, Sorry. The first time this played out for me, I couldn't believe it what I, I had seen. And I had to go back and rewind it and watch it a few times just to be like, did this end the way that I thought that it ended? And yeah, sure enough, this ending doesn't change. And it sure is indelible. Just that gun ringing out and the cut to black. And you don't know what happens. But the way that Bone is, he could have missed him at that distance. That's what makes the, the, the jumping onto the yacht scene in the original script just hilarious to me because that the move the, the ending you get feels like the only ending you could get. Even with Alex succumbing to his wounds going through the glass, you I can't see anything else but this inevitable death wish all the way through. So them getting away with it, yeah, that's to me that's to live and die in LA where William Peterson survives the shotgun to the face. They all live happily ever after in Alaska, you know. But I would kill to see that scene. I really wish they, they, had, uh, they had shot it. It just sounds delightful. Just two best friends going off into the sunset. But one thing, you know, we were saying a lot in the earlier part of this discussion. We kept saying that this was a 70s movie that was released in the 80s. And I completely agree with that. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why we don't talk about this movie that much. You can hear in the interview some of the things that had to happen after it was released, how, you know, Maitland sees it as Cutter and Bone, the rest of the world sees it as Cutter's Way, because that's the retitled name that they put out, had a whole new advertising campaign, a different branch of United Artists, not putting anything behind this movie. So it just kind of fizzles, but I don't think it's just all of their fault. I think I don't think people wanted to see this. You know, we talked about the thing a few years ago and you know, what comes before the thing is E.T. and people want to see the cute, fluffy alien. They want, they want, you know, that experience. They don't want the thing. I think in 1981, you know, we were looking at that city on the hill already with Reagan and attitudes are starting to shift. I don't think people want this kind of throwback to more of a winter's kill type of conspiracy movie to, uh, anything that Pakula is doing. I don't think they want that at this time. I think they want more light and fluffy fare. They want Jeff Bridges to be the hero. They want John Hurd to be the fun dad. They don't want this type of entertainment. You're probably right. They they want Raiders of the Lost Ark right now and Close Encounters. And they want they want to be able to trust the government again because that's where the money is. And put all this really ugliness behind us. So thank you for your service. Please go rant and rave if you must over there. We're not going to put you in a uh, mental uh, facility because uh, don't worry, the president's going to cut all the funding for that. 
all of this having been said, I actually love this ending, even though it's crazy. It really is crazy. You, once you get to that party, things just stuck. Even the way he gets into that party makes no sense at all. It, it, it's like that, that's like a teenager hopping over a hedge to get into a neighbor's yard or something when this is a hugely expensive party filled with people who have security, people who their, their party doesn't get crashed that way. But yeah, he crashes it anyway. And just everything about it is lunatic. The, the grabbing that woman for, for the smooch uh, is ridiculous. I mean, I'm stammering with how preposterous a lot of these things are, even though you absolutely can and I absolutely do go with them. But then the finale of, of basically having two people kill him simultaneously because it's a live hand on a dead hand and a gun. And then it all goes to black. I think you kind of feel like, did the print just burn up in the projector? And this is where it has to end. It burned up when they were screening the final cut negative. Okay. And the end of it just burned up. And now this is what we had to make do with to bring this movie to a conclusion. And maybe people will just go with it because there has been a, a kind of crazy underlying it throughout. Well, the food the, in me goes, well, don't you see? Now they're the same guy. He said he was Alexander Richards. Then he said he was Richard Alexander. Now they're the same person. And that would make me also want to throw myself out of class. So uh, I'm, I'm glad that I did that here. When this movie is called Cutter and Bone, that's basically them at the end of this this whole adventure that they have. And yeah, it's it's a wild ride. But to your point, Maitland, I can't think of anything else you know this feels like the way it should have ended i think that this was one time where making that snap decision really helped out the film because yeah i don't want to see them riding off into the sunset i don't want to see george getting his father revealed no i'm your father like i don't need any of that stuff i think this really hits i mean yes we lose that last scene with valerie but you know I think we're okay with her just kind of disappearing because really Mo disappears and then she disappears or it might even be vice versa. And just by the end of it, it that, here we are just cut her in bone. No chicks allowed. It is the perfect ending. And yet it is perfect in such a twisted way that you really feel as though you got pulled into the, the insanity of everybody's motivations and darkness and increasing detachment from the normal life of this movie, even let alone normal life. Forget normal people's lives, but what's been passing for normal life in Cutter and Bone just comes to this absolute lunacy. And I, I, and, and I think that the place where it really starts is when the sister is reading that profile in the magazine and it talks about you know, him saying, oh, I like to pick up hitchhikers and talk to, to, to them and hear what young people are thinking. That's ridiculous. Everything about that scene is ridiculous. But at that point, the movie has reached this, this point where, no, okay, that's how the gas can part comes into it. You know, oh, okay, now, that, now we've got that. And that makes sense. And that's bringing us to this ending. And Again, that's a very 70s thing. There was just that chaos that was in the air all the time that allowed you to believe preposterous things, including horrifying things that you had to believe because they were real. 
So I think it adds to the movie that way. Yeah, when I was listening to one of the commentaries, they were comparing it a lot to Chinatown. And I don't think it's just because it was another Eastern European director making a statement about America. There was that, but there was also just this, the older people in this community have done horrible things and we are living with the consequences. So, you know, Cord being the old money, possibly killing George's father, all of this kind of stuff. And then... You know, Noah Cross out there with his whole twisted thing. It's like the town's elders, the ones who get to ride the big white horse in the Founders Day parade, they're the ones you really need to watch out for, and they're the ones that are fucking us. I thought the commentary on the 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 film was really well done. There's actually two commentary tracks, and I think all of that plus more is getting ported over to this new Fun City Editions. And I, I feel bad that we're recording this the day that that disc is available because I really wanted to see what was on there because there's already a whole wealth of extra features out there for this. And I think they've done even more. And I thought I read that they had deleted scenes. So to your point, I wish they had filmed the whole George revelation that would have been pretty cool, but it doesn't sound like that ever got captured. The yacht chase. They have to write that in there and not shoot a yacht chase, man. There's a lot of connective tissue to this movie that definitely was cut. Reading that script, you get to see a lot of the beginnings of scenes, endings of scenes where they would just take the middle of the scene when they were doing the editing of it. So you're missing a lot of connective tissue, but I think it works because this movie is so cuckoo. You don't want all of the tissue to tie it together. You want so many of these loose ends and just the scenes kind of collide together rather than flowing together. Yeah. Context is for other movies. And here you're in Cutter's world and we're all just trying to figure it out. It's a, it is a fever dream. And fever dreams actually do feel kind of great at the same time that they are the product of that insane fever. You wake up and, and you want to remember them so badly because they were so astonishing. There's the fever dream for you on, on the screen. All right. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. I'm talking from the bedroom of Norma Desmond. Don't bother with a rewrite, man. Take this direct. Ready? As day breaks over the murder house. Yes, you'll read the big black headlines about Norma Desmond and this Hollywood scandal. But you'll never read the true story about the rest of us who were part of it. Me, for instance. Joe Gillis, a promising young writer from Dayton, Ohio. And Betty, that nice kid I met at a Hollywood party who knew nothing about me but knew what she wanted. Don't you love Artie? Of course I love him. I always will. I'm just not in love with him anymore. What happened? You did? Well, we should have lived happily ever after, like they do in the movies. But this was different, because this is a Hollywood story about the people who make the movies, the little ones that you never hear of, like Betty and me, the great ones like Cecil B. DeMille, 
all those who knew Norma Desmond, a strange woman who left her mark on all of us, who crossed her path. Has it ever occurred to you that I may have a life of my own, that there, there may be some girl that I'm crazy about? Who? Some car hop or dress extra? What I'm trying to say is that I'm all wrong for you. You want a Valentino, somebody with polo ponies, a big shot. What you're trying to say is you don't want me to love you. Say it. Say it. Gloria Swanson, one of the great personalities of this generation in a role that comes to an actress once in a lifetime. Rising to the heights, William Holden creates a startling portrayal. And a new star is born in Sunset Boulevard, Miss Nancy Olson. Joe? Where are you? What's this all about? Why don't you come out and see for yourself? The address is 10,086 Sunset Boulevard. Yes, come out to see for yourself the film that reaches a new milestone of dramatic daring. The film that every critic says is a giant among motion pictures. That's right. We'll be back next week with our final film of Noir Vember, Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Mike and Maitland. So, Maitland, what is the latest with you, ma'am? The latest with me is that I have created a Substack newsletter, which is designed to showcase my interest in vintage gay adult novels, and specifically genre novels, thrillers, horror, mysteries. And I would love you to go visit it at vintagegaybooks.substack.com. There's lots of free material up there that you can read. And if you're really enthralled, it would be great if you subscribed because there are new essays going up every two weeks. And Mr. Watt, what is going on with you, sir? We at Happy Cloud Pictures just re-released uh, Amy Lynn Best's directorial meta film splatter movie, the director's Blu-ray and it looks it actually looks really nice for having been shot on DV so long ago. Um, it's it's a lot of fun. It's very bloody, and uh, our latest issue of Exploitation Nation number thirteen is on sale now, uh, and we're working on fourteen now. Uh, we're we're fourteen will be a little tribute to William Richard uh, and who who passed his memorial was on the was on the sixteenth. Uh, and that's it for us. See us at the HappyCloudPictures.net. Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on, like The Shabby Detective, a Columbo podcast, Dreams for Sale, a Twilight Zone 85 podcast, The Life and Times of Captain Barney Miller, Rankin on Bass, all that stuff. It's available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
Don't ever orgy with a pet monkey. The little fuckers bite.